You are listening to a Hillbilly Horror Stories classic episode. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two hit he got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Welcome to the one-year anniversary show of Hillbilly Horror Stories, episode 54. Yay! I am joined by Tracy, which she couldn't wait for. Apparently she was too ecstatic, so... Yay! (laughs) Of course, I'm Jerry, and we have got a hell of a show for you tonight. Yeah, we are so excited to have this show, and hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, we put a lot of effort into trying to line up some special guests specifically for this show and do the stories that you guys wanted for this show. Uh, it's going to be a long one, so buckle up and get ready for uh, probably two and a half to three hours. We don't know yet because we're not <gasps> Oh finished, my gosh, but... yeah, y'all don't fall asleep. Yeah. You, you might miss trust, something good. Trust me, you're not going to fall asleep during this one. This one's going to be good from start to finish. Mm. Let me tell you what we got for you guys tonight. First of all, I want to get some shout outs out of the way because we got a lot of show to get to, so we're going to knock some of these out. Military and civil servants all over the world, you guys always get our first shout out. Absolutely. Now, this show was started a year ago, or a day off. It was actually started on the 21st of August. It was started because of my buddy Kevin, who passed away a few years back. It's his birthday is August 21st, mine is August 22nd, and I had an experience involving Kevin, which we've talked about on previous shows. We will not rehash that. Uh, I believe episode 16, you can go back and listen to that if you'd like to hear the experience. But because of that, I thought it would be fitting to start this show on his birthday. So a big shout out to Kevin Tuttle for a heavenly birthday. Heavenly birthday. We love you and miss you so much, Kevin. A couple of podcasters have taken us under their wing and brought us on their shows, done everything they can to help us from advice to uh, just knowledge about the business that, to be honest with you, not a lot of people share in this industry. Uh, That's why we try to share as much as we can with other people because we had people do it to us. I want to give those people some special shout outs because we probably wouldn't have made it a year without them. So the first is going to be, uh, it's going to have to be Denise and Diane from History Goes Bump, which will be on the show a little later tonight. Awesome. Thank you, guys. They were the very first show to mention us uh, on, on one of their shows, and, and it was because a caller, uh, a caller, the hell am I doing, radio now? I don't know. It was one of the listeners, Anthony Alvarenga, actually had written to their show and suggested they give us a listen, and that's the first time our show was ever talked about by anybody, and that's a pretty good host's. Uh, to be mentioned on because they're they got a nice listener base so we yeah. actually notice a little bump so to speak um <laughs> from their show love you anthony for doing that yep second of all the very first show to actually have us on which really kick-started all of us because we were got, kind of getting we were getting some listens and we had some loyal listeners out there but it wasn't taken off by any means uh and we went on a show, and everything skyrocketed from there. And that would be Donny, uh, Donny, Tony, and Jenny Burski. What is wrong with you? I don't know. <laughs> You've been drinking today. <laughs> 
But that's actually Tony and Jenny Bursky from Real Ghost Stories Online. So they get a huge shout out from us. Without them bringing us on their show, most of you probably wouldn't have a clue who we were. Yeah, thanks guys. We love y'all. Jake and Sam from Just a Story. They actually let us do a little bit uh, on the beginning of their show. And their show is not completely like ours, but it definitely helped. Oh, sure. And not only that, they gave us a lot of information, which helped us along the way. Yeah, they're so fun too. Jake and Sam, thank you for that. Phil Holmes. From Scared and also Worst Crimes Ever, which is his newest podcast. If you haven't listened to it, give it a holler. He's getting a little bit into the true crime area. Yeah, and it's doing really good. Yeah, and it's, it's done in a completely different way than what most of the mm-hmm. true crime ones are, so it's it's kind of fun. But Phil has been a wealth of knowledge for our show, and, and he's given me guidance that I don't think anybody else could have given me. And, you know, he didn't have to with the show as big as what he's got. He could have just said, hey, I don't have time to mess with these guys. But he takes his time out on a regular basis to either Skype or talk with us on any any help that he can give us. And I really greatly appreciate that. Yeah, and he puts some pictures of some awesome breakfast. I wish he could come make me. Just (laughs) saying. The man can obviously cook. No doubt. Thank you, Phil, honey. Another shout-out we've gotten, this will be the last to the, the podcasters, because to be honest with you, there are so many podcasters that helped us that it would be almost impossible to name all of them, but I'm I'm trying to name the ones that have helped us out the most uh, in, in a bunch of different areas. The last one's going to be K-Town from Mysterious Radio. Oh, yeah. And, you know, who knows? There's uh, I think there's going to be some more help coming along the way from K-Town, so that would be something we'll keep you in the the know of and a little bit later on but k-town is fantastic she lives not too far from us and we're probably going to hook up with her in a month or so on our way down to gatlinburg and nice have a dinner or so so thank you so much k-town um most of all biggest shout out biggest thank yous you're welcome honey okay oh sorry the biggest <laughs> shout out <laughs> will go to you guys the listeners oh yeah because of course. we absolutely positively would never even consider doing a show put any time into it, or even waste a second's breath if it wouldn't for you oh, guys. Oh, yeah. We cannot begin to thank you guys enough. You, We have so many new friends now. We're so excited, and we just love when you guys comment and all the nice things that you say. So we are totally blessed to have you guys in our lives. Okay. Let's go through the, uh, the Patreon real quick. Patrick Austin, Natasha Ali, Brad Dixon, thank you guys for being new patrons. Of course, you can go to our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com, and sign up for uh, the Patreon right there. I'll try to remember to put a link on the website because I'm not really good about doing that. But you get a bunch of extra shows, and we've already got, I think, six bonus episodes already on there. All right, for the iTunes ratings, Amy L88, Wildstar Orchid, S. Villarreal 062, Freezer Guy, Abby Pancakes, Coda's mom, Cat Girl in Vermont, and Michelle Lee, 19. Thank you guys for yes, the Yes, thank iTunes. you all. Uh, I have to mention, again, Studio headphones. Used them when I was cutting grass this morning, and they're absolutely awesome. The, uh, of course, they're Bluetooth. Get them anywhere from $49.99 up to $99.99, and these things sell in Target and, and Home Shopping Network. The $99 that I got sell for $149.99 at both of those locations. So you're definitely getting a better deal. If you use our code, Hillbilly15, you get 15% off. So not only are you getting $150 set of headphones for 85 bucks, you can actually get them a little cheaper than that if you go with the $50 earbuds. So thank you guys for giving us a great product, uh, a great name from a stupid song. <laughs> from the Phil Collins song. <laughs> well, I know, but you know, I heard that stupid song on the radio the other day and I automatically went to the headphones, so... Let me tell you what we got in store for you guys tonight. 
at the very end of the show, uh, we usually play a song going out. Tonight's song is going to be, uh, yeah, what's I guess a friend of the show more than anything, a friend in life, friend of the show. Oh yeah. The beginning of our show has a new little rap that we started doing a couple months back. That is by a gentleman by the name of Tragic, good friend of ours from Solzer Entertainment. He has a new song out, and the new song is called Handouts. It's spelled with a Z at the end, because that's how them cool rappers do. Okay. They misspell stuff with Zs. Gia. So, very end of the show, stay tuned. We're going to play his newest song. It's not a parody or goofy like that. It's the actual. Mothman. It's, it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's an, actual, it's an actual real song, and uh, we're going to play it at the end of the show. We are going to do... Several little bits for you tonight. The first thing we're going to do is Ed and Lorraine Warren. So many of you guys have asked about them. And to be honest with you, other than we know they're tied in with a bunch of stories, not a lot of information is really out as far as the people themselves. Mm -hmm. So we're going to teach you a little bit about Ed and Lorraine Warren. We're going to talk about their museum with a special guest, surprise guest. Then we are going to um, have an interview with Diane and Denise from History Goes Bump. And then we have the big part of the night. This is the surprise that I was telling you guys about last week. We are going to tell you the true story of The Conjuring. Now, that's not the big news. We do a lot of movies like that all the time. What we're going to do, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time, we're not going to be quite as detailed as we normally are because right after that, we have an interview with our our special guest, Andrea Perrin. Now, Andrea was the oldest daughter from the real-life family that The Conjuring was based off of. She did the books, uh, a trilogy of books called House of Darkness, House of Light. That's what they based the whole movie off of. And she's going to come on and tell us all kinds of cool stuff. We'll get more into it right before I bring her on. So how about that for a show? I think it sounds great. And seven hours later, you'll be finished listening to it. <laughs> you'll be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just jump right into this. We, we thank you guys, and we hope you enjoy this as much as we have putting it together because we've been excited about it all week long. All right, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed Warren was born September 7, 1926 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He died August 23, 2006, which is oddly corresponding with the close proximity of when this uh, show's being released. Mm-hmm. He was 79 years old. Lorraine Warren, she was born January 31, 1927. She's still alive today. She's roughly 90 years old. Is she? Yeah, and I mean that she's very roughly. Have you seen her lately? No. <laughs> No. Well, poor thing. She's had a hard life, if you think about it. I'm sure she probably has. Uh, Ed Warren, he basically was a uh, had consistent paranormal activity from the time he was five years old. So that's kind of how he got involved in this. They said that throughout his childhood, he started seeing weird lights. He would have glowing orbs. He would hear footsteps, whispers. And shadow people would constantly appear around him. Mm. So, which is odd because he's never really been considered to be like a sensitive or a medium or anything, but he sure saw a lot right. to not be that part of it. Ed's father believed that there was a logical reason for anything in the world that happened in the house, though he never really had any of those answers. He just said that there was a logical reason, but he didn't really have the logical reason. Yeah. That's going, Dad. So, at the age of 16, Ed met a very vibrant, fertile, 15-year-old by the name of Lorraine Moran. And he decided to walk her home from the Colonial Theater at Bridgeport, Connecticut, and the rest is history, so they say. Nice. Very romantic. It actually survived a lot of shit. Not just all the, you know, mm-hmm. weird stuff and the haunted. Oh, yeah. Ed joined the Navy. He actually survived a sinking ship. 
came back, married Lorraine. Then he went to World War II and get, and survived that. And then they had their first daughter. So he had quite an eventful life right from the beginning. Yeah. Ed and Lorraine were basically living off artwork that Ed created. He was quite the artist. Oh, cool. Back in the day. Good for him. The artwork is what really started the paranormal stuff, which most, most people don't realize this. Ed said he would go out in the middle of the street and just start sketching houses. And then he would notice that the curtains would move back and forth, that type of thing. And then Lorraine would actually approach the owners and tell them how Ed loved his sketching haunted houses. Mm-hmm. Why do you so, have to stand in the middle of the street? Well, I mean, they didn't have Google Maps back then. You couldn't just pull uh, up a picture of the house. Duh, I know that. I'm just saying, why don't you just, like, stand in the yard or overside the fence? Or why you got to stand in the middle of the road? Well, I don't know. Well, how, go ahead. That's He's curious. dead now. Who am I going to ask? I don't know. He could have been dead then if a car ran over him. <laughs> Anyway, he would see curtains moving and stuff and back and forth, and, and Lorraine would go over there. So that, that mm-hmm. was, in a way, telling the people that, hey, you've got a haunted house. So they oh. were kind of noticing that. So, so you skipped right over that because you were more worried about the fact of why was he standing in the road. Well, I didn't want him to get hit. He could be all up in his painting and crush. Bam. So, so Roadkill. Ed, Ed and Lorraine began to take their research a lot more seriously. Ed became a self-proclaimed, I guess you could say, demonologist. And a demonologist, for people who are really like, what the hell is a demonologist? It's the systematic studies of demons or beliefs about demons, a branch of theology related to the supernatural being not considered um, gods, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say. So they're they're more or less as demonology. Yeah. Lorraine professed to be a clairvoyant and a light trace medium. What's that mean? Well, a clairvoyant is the alleged ability to obtain information about an object or a person or location or an event through ESP. Okay. And then a trace medium is more or less um, you remain conscious, but the spirit or whatever uses you for communication. Oh, not you don't mean like goes through your body, like on Ghost. Right. Doesn't go well, kind of yeah. like that. Yeah, that's more or less like Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, you know what that, that would... she was like a trace medium. In that. How cool would that be? Do you think it would be cool to just be like all of a sudden a ghost just enters your body, and then whatever? But well, don't you think that would be cool? Kind of. I think that would that would be kind of cool. I mean, I guess. I mean, just to say it happened. I mean, you could say it happened now. Doesn't mean it really happened. That's what most people say happens in these cases. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, like a true, not somebody lying. But that would be pretty cool to do. But they they got famous because they were involved in a lot of really famous cases. And then we're not going to touch on a ton of them because a lot of them we've already touched on on the sure. show. But the very first was 1970 when they encountered, I don't know, a haunted raggedy doll. That a couple of nurses had nursing students, and that of course would be the infamous Annabelle. So that's that's what kind of kicked everything off. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, in 1970, there was a story that's going to be near and dear to our heart tonight: the Perrin family. Now, the Perrin family still happened in '70, but I don't believe that um, the Warrens got involved until like 1974. So like a little later, yeah. Yeah. So the '70s is when they're they're problem started but 1974 i think was when the warrants got involved uh so we'll talk plenty about that tonight so we'll have that discussion 1975 amityville horror obviously you know what happened there we've Mm -hmm. done two shows on the amityville horror 1977 the infield poltergeist Mm -hmm. which was the story behind the conjuring 2 
Uh, we've talked already about that one on this show. So mm-hmm. we've covered a lot of their cases. Here's one that we haven't covered that I'm sure we probably will. 1981, the Brookfield Demon Murder Case. Now, that was more, like I said, it's not your typical story like some of these other ones. This mm-hmm. one actually was a murder case that they were kind of involved in helping investigate. More of a true crime than a haunting. Then in 1986, and this was kind of a big one, haunting in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. They were involved with that situation, and we've done that story. So by the time we get through wrapping up tonight, most of the big hauntings they were involved in, we will have covered. All right. So that pretty much is the story on the Warrens. Uh, there really isn't much else to tell. I mean, we could have went into a lot more detail on just, you know, who they were or what have you. Yeah. The most important thing to remember about them is, aside from being involved in all these cases, and, you know, they documented all these cases in what they called the Warren Case Files. Mm-hmm. And the Warren Case Files is where a lot of these movies actually came from. Mm-hmm. Um, keep in mind, and when we talk about The Conjuring, that Lorraine actually came forward and she tried to reach the parents back in, you know, the 80s, the early 80s, about getting a movie or book deal about their situation. And uh, they refused. They didn't want to have anything to do with it back then. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, the, Ed always said before he died, hey, do what you can to get their story out there. Because he always felt like that this was the uh, most incredible story that they dealt with. Yeah. During all of their investigations. That says a lot when you're talking right. about the Amulet oh, yeah. and the oh, yeah. in Connecticut and all that. He said this was the case and the story needed to be told. And then obviously when they went to make the movie, um, Lorraine and Andrea Perrin, who will be on the show a little bit later, they actually kind of came together. They both turned in all their information and then Hollywood kind of made a script based on putting the two of them together. Right. I so. just it's just amazing that those two have lived their lives like their whole lives, basically. Yeah, I mean she's ni- dealing with this stuff. She's ninety years old now and from my understanding, um Lorraine still actually does, does she really? stuff like that. Oh man, good for her. Yep. So now she's not really running the museum anymore. The museum's up and running, but I think it's their son in law oh, who's actually running the museum. So good. it's still being ran and still in the family. In the family, that's good. So what we're gonna do now is as part of this story, we're actually going to talk about the museum and some of the items that are in the museum. We all know about Annabelle, so we're not going to touch on Annabelle. Uh, but there are four or five artifacts that we really haven't heard much about mm-hmm. that I thought would be cool to talk about. And I got a special guest to help me with that. And you just said you weren't going to touch on Annabelle's butt. <laughs> What's that about, honey? <laughs> that's that's not what I meant. <laughs> all right. So I thought what we do at this point is we're going to talk about the Warren Museum and some of the objects that are inside the museum. And in order to do that, I thought I'd bring in a special guest. Some of you may know this person. It's the original co-host of Hillbilly Horror Stories, Ricky Granger. Rick, good to have you on board again. What's going on, Jerry? So let me ask you this. We're going to take a trip down memory lane real quick. So roughly a year ago, we started this little thing up. And just basically, well, we, I, I remember the original plan was till about 20 minutes 20 to 30 minutes, because yeah. that's all we thought anybody would want to listen to. And yep. <laughs> now this thing's up to where we're doing, I think, uh, one of the last shows was two and a half just hours long. Up. Yep. So I People mean, love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, did you ever think that it would ever get to the point where it is now? We, we just went over 258,000 downloads. Wow. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I mean, it's a great show. People, you know, people love it. It's an awesome show. 
So let me ask you this. Do you miss it at all? Absolutely. Yeah. But I got to tell you, you and Tracy do a great job. I mean, you guys, the, the connection you two got doing this is just awesome. I appreciate that. I know she appreciates it. I mean, it's kind of funny because it all started, I guess, because I think we've told this story before, but she wanted to be the original host, and I didn't think it would work. Right. And then I chose you because of the conversations we used to have right, all the time. Right, right. And um, you had a situation when we got ready to do the first Rock and Roll Occult show where you got a stomach virus or something that couldn't mm-hmm. make it that night. Yep. So she was forced to fill in, and it just kind of clicked a little bit. You did, uh, I think, two more episodes after that. Yeah. And then, you yeah. know, decided that, hey, it's probably going to be a better fit plus with work schedules right. and everything it was too tough right and hearing mm. you too i mean you know it's it's just it's a natural it's a natural so, combo it's cool uh and i don't know you know who knows what the future would have been with a, with us because i'm sure we would have made a lot of tweaks and changes because we already were i mean i know we did the first four episodes one way and then we changed on the fifth episode right and <laughs> so we were already starting to try to evolve the show a little bit and who knows i mean we could have had just as much success in a whole different direction and a different group of listeners, or it might have just, you know, we might not, we not, might not have been doing this episode right here. <laughs> That's true, but <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's it blows me away to think about that a year's come and gone. Because if you remember, we did the first episode, and then the very next week, I was getting ready to go in for heart surgery. So we shot two episodes on that following Sunday. Yeah, and, and then yep. I went, I went into the hospital on Tuesday. Just because I knew we wouldn't be able to do the one the following week. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and now I'm looking back. I'm like, it's hard to believe that's been a year ago. I, I can't believe it either. I can't believe it. Well, let's jump into this story, Rick. Um, the Warrens obviously have a museum up in Connecticut. It's in their home. They've got hundreds of objects there. they got a priest that comes in once a week to, to bless all this stuff. And I thought we would touch on four or five of the items in there. Everybody knows Annabelle's in uh-huh, there, so we're not right. going to touch on Annabelle. Yeah. Um, I mean, probably could touch on Annabelle, but you'd usually be in a courtroom <laughs> saying, <laughs> show us where he touched you. <laughs> so we, I decided that we were going to touch on some of the other objects that maybe not everybody knows about. The first one are the death dolls. Have you ever heard of those? I, I, yeah, my wife told me about them. Okay, cool. This is the first I'd heard about it, but it's two dolls. That were used in black magic. Um, the death doll is created with the intent to basically make somebody sick or die. And that was the whole intention. Now, in, in order to make it work, you have to have something from the victim, either hair or clothing. And then they hang it in a, a tree that's somewhere near the victim. Huh. And, I mean, that's freaky enough in right. its own right. Yeah. So they said that over 100 years old is how old these things are. Wow. I mean, that's pretty damn old for, yeah. for a doll. So this thing's over over 100 years old. It was bought by a collector, and then he felt like the dolls were evil. Imagine. <laughs> could imagine buying some dolls that were used for black magic over 100 years ago would be evil. And he said that these dolls would, like, disappear and just reappear days later someplace other than where they should have been. Wow. So, and I said he, it's actually a she, but, you know, facts she, are optional yeah, on this show. You know, these days it doesn't matter, I guess. <laughs> yeah, ain't that the truth. So she started having this, this really bad luck, so she turned around and gave it to Ed and Lorraine, and they put it in a museum. Right. Um, one of the other ones that I thought was really cool, African fertility dolls. Now, I really couldn't find anything on this story that told me about why they were fertility dolls. Right. Because everything about it seems kind of jacked up, and I don't really see where fertility comes into it. But they were used by a witch doctor over in Africa. He used to practice black magic. It's kind of an ongoing thing. 
He said, and this is this is the part that confuses me because it says an unknown person stole the the dolls from the witch doctor. He sent them to a relative, hoping that the relative would be able to sell them, give right. them some money. Out of right. The man who stole the dolls died without any explanation. Huh. Well, my first question is, if yeah. it was somebody unknown yeah. that stole it, how they know that he died? Right. Why didn't he end up pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> With no explanation. Now that <laughs> that I could understand the whole fertility thing. So the person he sent it to became paralyzed, and within two years, that guy and his wife both died. Oh, wow. So Yeah, and I don't know where fertility came from. <laughs> yeah, there was nothing for... So, I mean, I'd imagine at some point in time they were used for fertility, but it don't sound like that that's what's going on now. One of the one of my favorites that I saw out of it was the A Conjuring Mirror. And it has nothing to do with the movie, but it was a five-foot-tall antique mirror. And they said the first owner's guy, the guy's name was Steven Cylinder. He lives in Pennsylvania, and he used to practice black magic. Once again, ongoing yeah. thing. Yeah. He used it to try to take revenge on people that he didn't like. That'd be, that'd be kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, I got this mirror. I think I'll use it to take revenge on I mean, because you imagine some people, that would be like all day long in front of that mirror to try to take it. Right. So Charging at the door. Yeah. So he used to summon inhuman spirits to try to have him find his victim and attack him. Oh, wow. I mean, I guess, you know, huh. who was hasn't? It, was it a pocket mirror? <laughs> yeah, I think it was I think it was a five-foot mirror. Unless he's got a big-ass pocket. That wasn't going to happen. He made the mistake of accidentally cursing himself, and the spirits attacked him. Oh, boy. So I don't know how you make that mistake, but he apparently did. So what he happened was he starts hearing these footsteps, a lot of heavy breathing in the house. Doors started opening and closing by themselves. And then he started having objects thrown at him. Oh, man. He went about a week. He went to the church. He begged them to help, you know, and so they said, okay, we'll try to get rid of the spirit. The church called Ed and Lorraine, and uh, Ed said that he would have to come in and kind of, uh, what do you call it, reverse the spell, which he said he did. He reversed the curse, and they said almost immediately everything that the guy had going on stopped. But he pretty much begged Ed and Lorraine to take the mirror home with him because he didn't want to have any part of it anymore, which, you know, you can imagine. Yeah, I would have too. Hey. Take it with you. You don't want it. Just get in the dumpster. The Shadow Doll. You ever heard of that one? No. The Shadow Doll was first owned by an antique store until this young couple came in and bought it. Now, the first night that they had it, they had these terrible, terrifying nightmares. And the guy and girl both woke up. They had scratches all over their body. Huh. I mean, don't sound too bad to me. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's just me. So Circumstances, the, I guess. That's right. The second <laughs> night, they had the exact same thing happen, except when they woke up, it wasn't scratches. It was like claw marks. Yeah, that's different. Yeah, that's yeah, a little different. But know. it does kind of remind me of the Buck Cherry song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Obviously, they contacted Ed and Lorraine, and uh, Ed said he could tell right away the doll was evil. Of course, of course, he's going to say it was evil. You know. <laughs> yeah. So he said he could tell it was evil, and uh, he took it back with him. Uh, Ed said that he could tell it was made out of human and animal bone, huh. uh, and that the doll's purpose was to haunt dreams. Oh, wow. So 
I mean, who sits, you know, who sits there and just thinks of this crazy stuff to come up with? Well, I think Ed and Lorraine were just lying just to be able to take all this shit home. <laughs> just to put in their book. <laughs> I got to think, maybe, does the wonder if their house looks like a flea market or a peddler's mars? They got a lot of dolls. They do have a lot of dolls. <laughs> so they ask. And they said, well, why don't you destroy these things instead of taking them back and putting them in a museum? And he said, well, I can't make money on them if they're... No, it's not what he said. <laughs> but he said, he said, because the spirits would be free, and then they would hunt the person who destroyed the item. Huh. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess. And I heard they got all kinds of just regular stuff in there, like haunted lamps and all kinds of Oh, it's cool, stuff. actually, because yeah. I've seen a bunch of videos where they, they went through now... My understanding is, because Lorraine is still alive, obviously. Ed passed away in 2006 or 8, yeah. 2006. And supposedly their son, son-in-law, I think, now actually runs the place. Oh, okay. And Because Lorraine's like 90 years old. Yeah, yeah. She's and, old now. Which, she's not dead, but I think she actually probably died like three years ago and nobody told her. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's just, just walking around. But I don't know... For sure, if Annabelle was still there, because I've seen videos where they were going to be moving Annabelle, and they were moving her from one case that she was in to another case. Oh, okay. And then so, and I think that was we're here within the last year, so I have no right. clue. I got you. So that's what we got for the haunted items in the uh, Warren Museum. What do you think about the Warrens? Do you think that they are full of shit? Do you think they're? <sighs> well, I don't know. Only thing I know, to be honest, from you is is from the movies. <laughs> That's about the extent that I know from. <laughs> well, you've been a huge help in this matter. Yeah, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about. Let's catch up a little bit before we get off here. Um, a and be truthful. Do you listen to the show? Yes. Religiously? Not religiously. Okay. Like so, religiously, like me, like I never go to church. <laughs> But supposedly, I'm Catholic. Um, I, I actually I play catch up on them. That's what a lot of people time, do. Yeah. Um, and, and I can't lie; I'm like that with right. half the podcasts I right. listen to. Just the time's not there, and then you yeah. get some free time and catch up on them. Yeah. Um, what do you think as far as the progression the show's made? As far as being twenty, thirty minutes to being. Over an hour, hour and a half, almost every show. Do you think that's better or it, that's worse? No, I think that's absolutely that. It's awesome because it's more immersive. You know what I mean? You find mm-hmm. yourself getting into it more. You know, before you know, you listen to it. It started cool little stories. It's over with. But honestly, from the outside listening in, I think it's a thousand times better because you know you actually you're getting into it. You know what I mean? It's like. It's like watching a movie as opposed to watching an infomercial. You get what? Does that make right. sense to no, you? No, it makes complete you know sense. I mean? So yeah, I mean, I, it's, I actually love it. The, the sound's gotten better. Um, I mean, and, and Tracy, you know, she's hilarious. You know, you're kind of funny, but whatever. You know. Um, so let me ask you this: <laughs> when, when we were doing the show, we didn't have um, any kind of interviews or anything like that. And now right. we're getting special guests yeah, come that, on. Some of them tell stories. Thing. That's, that's great. Yeah. So you like you like having the oh, guests yeah, on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, do you like it when we have guests on like almost every show, or would you rather it be like once every couple of shows? From I a would listener? I would say every couple shows. Reason being because I I, I 
honestly, my favorite part of the show is is you know I love Tracy. You know, what I'm saying the jokes are, but my favorite part of the show is you telling your stories. I mean, that's that's what gets in my opinion. That's what gets people in, gets them listening, gets them hooked because you know you can tell a story like a mo- you know what I mean. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what amazes me about the show more than anything is my favorite shows are the rock and roll shows. Yeah. And we have more people right to specifically say, when are you going to do more music? Those are my favorite shows. Right. So mm-hmm. you would think those are no-brainers. Those are the right. most popular. Right. But they're not. They're actually um, they're some of the least listened really? to shows. So now when we do what, music. What is the most popular? Is They, they just like the standard d- d- haunted houses. Haunted houses, the story. ghosts. I mean, stuff, I can't yeah. see we're like doing a movie like The Conjuring that we're doing tonight right. or The Exorcist. Right. I don't really see that it gets any more listens right, right. than something where uh, we just basically talk about a haunted location right. over in Australia or, or an asylum mm-hmm. or any of that. Our yeah. most listened to show for the longest time, was the Gary Demon House up in Gary, Indiana. Right. Uh, and I think because we had some of the excerpts from the exorcisms, right, right. I think that freaked a lot of people yeah. out, and that's oh, probably yeah. what we got the most comments on. Yeah. So, But I love doing the music ones, but it's uh, I don't think it'll ever be a situation where we do just a whole show of nothing but music. Right. I just don't see that uh, really paying out. So what we're trying to do now is we'll do some regular stuff, and we'll throw a music part of it on there. That way everybody gets happy. and Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, but Rick, it's fun having you back on one Sir. year anniversary. Couldn't couldn't do it without having you on the show. Absolutely, and uh, glad and to have you on. It's just skyrocketing from here. Everybody yeah. loves it. Everybody loves it. My daughters listen to it. My my whole family, my wife's sisters, they love it. So it's it's an awesome show. I was wondering who the eight people who listened were. I guess <laughs> I guess now we've narrowed it down. Eight people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, brother. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll have you back on for something Jerry. soon. Jerry, I appreciate you having me on, man. I love doing a show anytime you want me to come on and and be a guest. I'd love to do it. So. Well, you were supposed to come over the other night, and you yeah. canceled. Well, I didn't. Well, not really canceled. Uh, postponed. I, okay, postponed. <laughs> postponed will work. <laughs> I had a side job that ran a lot longer than I thought it was. So. Side job. Yeah, Come on. Gotta make that money. Yeah, we gotta get that paper. We gotta make that paper. <laughs> All right, brother. I appreciate it, man. And uh maybe we'll see you again on the second year. Yes, sir, absolutely. It's fun having Ricky back over here again, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was really fun. Sure do miss him. Yeah, it's it's like I said, the show is definitely different um when we do it as we did that little segment that was more like the old show for those of you who didn't go back and listen to the first um, seven or eight episodes with Ricky. That was kind of more the way the show was. It's definitely progressed a lot in uh, the past several months. I think you like Ricky because he laughed at your dumb jokes. I think I like Ricky because he gets my jokes. <laughs> well, that could be true, too. We mentioned earlier in the show Diane and Denise from History Goes Bump, one of our favorite shows. They're they're super fun to listen to, and they've been one of the biggest helps. And the first people that ever have us mentioned on their show i thought it would be really cool to do an interview with those ladies on our anniversary show oh yeah and uh, i thought it went very well take a listen and then right after uh, the interview we're going to talk about the country and don't forget we've got the interview we did with miss perrin coming up whoop, whoop. i'm excited all right we're joined by some very special guests i have diane student and denise moore meyer from history goes bump one of uh, tracy and i's favorite podcasts hey guys welcome Hey, how are you? Great. Nice to talk to you guys. You guys are going to be on our true anniversary show for a very special reason. Your show was the very first show 
that mentioned us out of out of you know, we've been on several shows since, but you guys were the first that even said anything. Uh, we had a, a listener, a mutual listener by the name of uh, Anthony Alvarenga, who sent you guys a message. I don't expect you to remember because it's been back in uh, January, I believe. And you guys read his response on the air, and he mentioned us, and you uh, said you'd listen to his show, and it was uh, it was pretty cool. And then uh, from that time, you know, point in time, you you guys have been mentors to us, especially you, Diane. Absolutely. Anything and everything we've ever needed in this business, any kind of knowledge, you've been there to help out, and we greatly appreciate that. So we wouldn't consider having anybody else on our one-year anniversary show but you guys. Well, first of all, congratulations and big applause for you making it for a year you guys have done a phenomenal job. Obviously, I was listening to you early on when you first were getting started and just getting your toes wet and the growth that has come through the Hillbilly Horror Podcast has just been amazing to see what you guys have built, what you've grown. You're building an amazing community behind you. So the fact that we were a little little small part of that is very, very cool. And uh, so we're honored to have you guys have us on here and to think of us as mentors. Thank you. Yeah, so exactly. Much. It's really, really neat to be on this anniversary show. And congratulations. And Diane did do the round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! And so, um, but we're we're very honored to be chosen to to be here for your first anniversary. How exciting! Thank you so much. Yeah, you guys. Like I said, we uh, we can't thank you enough. And like I said, you you ended up bringing us. Not only did that that mention kind of started getting us some listens that we hadn't had, uh, but then and I've told this story before on your show, but uh, Diane left us a very favorable review, which she pointed out some uh, things that we needed to know. Like for example, that our early on when it was Ricky and myself, that the show was a little more crude. Not necessarily <laughs> for everyone, and it sounded like, uh, as I remember it, two guys sitting in a bar having a conversation, and then when Tracy came on board, it became a more, <laughs> uh, more for everybody type show, and uh, that was a that was really good feedback for us. And you know, I don't remember every single review. We've been lucky enough to have about two hundred and twenty iTunes reviews, but that's one that will always stick out yes. because it was. It was the key to what we've been able to accomplish thus far. That the, Those kind of, of tips and, and um, points of guidance is the way you guys have really helped us so much. Yeah, and that really meant a lot to me, um, and I appreciate you guys you know, being behind us like that. Well, you're very welcome, and as I said with that review, having Tracy as your partner on the podcast, it just added that little extra something that, it wasn't missing because you had a really good show before, but like I said, it just gave you more of a, I don't know, a general appeal to the rest of the world. And so, and I believe if you're going to give somebody an honest review and you see somewhere that they could make a little bit of a change that might help, or they have made a change that you think is really good, be genuine and honest about it. And so that's just what I did. Oh, well, thank you, honey. I appreciate it so much. I'm glad you feel that way because I've got a couple of things that I wrote down I'd like to see you change about your show. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> First of all, if you could get rid of that irritating co-host, <laughs> Janine. Uh, horrible. Hey, 
We've heard that a few times, haven't we, Trace? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. Well, you know what, Tracy? Denise has heard the same thing. The one thing that we learned, and you guys have probably learned as well, is when those negative reviews start coming in, it feels like, you know what? I have finally arrived that people care enough to actually give a negative review. And it, it really is amazing just how personal some of those reviews can get. Mm-hmm. But don't ever let it bother you, Tracy, because I think you are fabulous. I love your laugh, and you really do add a lot. And it, it's neat to listen to the back and forth that you both have because you've got Tracy who doesn't really know that much about the topic that you're discussing. And so it's neat to hear it from the perspective of somebody going, oh, my God, you're kidding. Oh, wow. Holy cow. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I do appreciate it. And I, I will admit that it was kind of hard for you know, one review hurt me pretty good, but, um, in the end, I believe that gentleman ended up apologizing Mm -hmm. and so it was all good, but, you know, I, I learned to live with it and, you know, I I definitely know (laughs) I do have my flaws though, but I enjoy it a lot. So I'm trying to do better at not taking it so personal, but I do like the spin you just put on that about, you know, at least they're listening to give me the feedback. So, you know, I do appreciate it now. Well, and, and it's not always feedback. Sometimes people just want to, for whatever reason, they just want to attack. And so yeah. you just have to shrug it off and move forward and keep doing a podcast that you all love doing and keeping it, keeping it real with, with you all, because people are going to be people and haters are going to hate yeah, no matter what you do and you can't true. please everybody. So I'm glad that you didn't let it get to you and you just kept going. Oh, thank you, sweetie. I appreciate it. Sometimes you just got to realize that people are just frustrated from living in their mom's basement and not having a job and eating Cheetos all day. <laughs> and that's bound to come out in one way, shape or form. And that's the way we look at it. Oh my gosh. Well, look, we, we babbled. Well, I was going to say, Jerry, I have no, I have I think that there are some people who there's a little bit of jealousy that might be involved too, especially, I don't know if you've gotten any of what I call them, the drive by one stars. That's the people who give you one star and no, no review or comment with it. No, we haven't had any of those yet. They like, to- we've got several of those. I call them drive bys and I just assume they must be jealous. Cause I don't know why else they would do that and then not give you a comment, at least to let you know yeah, what well, could I- we change to make it better. Right. You know, it's it's funny because we we do get some that baffle us. They're not necessarily the drive-bys. I would probably rather have that than some of the comments that people make. We've had, uh, and I've even went back and listened to try to figure it out. We've had a couple that mentioned racial overtones, and I've mm-hmm. never thought of us. Now, granted, we've we've uh, took some liberties with some Hispanic voices or something like that, and I guarantee that's probably what most people are talking about. But we actually have a pretty huge Hispanic listener base, and they they love the fact that we do that. We we do that, and we get all kinds of uh, emails and stuff saying, "Hey, we love it." And I remember way back with Ricky, one of the first episodes we did, uh, we started off speaking some Spanish, and we made a comment that it was for our our uh, token Mexican listeners. And I can't tell you how many reviews and stuff we've left that that says hey, this is Jose or this is whoever, uh, and they'll end it with your one token Mexican listener <laughs> and they have fun with it. And, and, you know, we've got a couple that, uh, of Hispanic listeners that engage with us on a regular basis and nobody seems to have an issue with it, but, uh, that's the only thing I can figure. And then I took some liberties with the Japanese, uh, fake Japanese on one of the episodes we did. And 
we got a negative review from that about me bastardizing the Japanese language. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, sometimes we just try to have some fun. Do we overstep, you know, some boundaries? Probably. But I've never really felt like that we were a racist show. Oh and, and we no had way. one guy flat up say, hey, the, the racial overtones were just gross. And he was going to quit listening to the show because of that. And, I, I mean, I've went back and tried to listen. I just mm. I couldn't find it. So I, I don't know. Those those confuse me probably more than a, just a, a one star with, with no comment. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Jerry, number one, if I had thought that you were racist or what have you, I certainly wouldn't have backed up your show and put it out there to people. So obviously I don't feel that way, but we actually got that too. And the one star review that this person, they started to make that kind of commentary in our community over on Facebook and we put the kibosh on it. So then they took it to iTunes and put the review up there and I, it was so bad. I actually had to go to iTunes and say, can you remove this? I don't know if that's possible, but uh, the, the things that they're saying about us and how we're racist and all this other stuff, and iTunes actually took it down because they realized that that was not true. And yeah. So I don't know. There's just some people out there. I don't know if it's that they're overly sensitive to something that's said or if they I – don't, I don't really know what their beef is, but we've had the same thing, so don't feel bad. Aww. Well, we've babbled enough about our show. <laughs> I brought you on to talk about your show. Now <laughs> – you just just got through releasing your 215th episode. Wow. Good. Great. You That's ladies great. are tearing it up. What I love about your show is I love that you splice it up. I love, you know, the the oddity stuff. I love the, you know, the day in history or now the the month in history. Uh, the moment in oddity is probably my favorite segment of the show just because it's it's I don't it's short. But at the same time, it's always something really interesting. So I love the fact that you have those. I can't seem to remember. I keep saying, hey, we're going to do a, a joke of the week. And then that never happens or it happens once. Or So how you guys can stay on top of it to keep these segments and keep them uh, exactly the way that, where they're supposed to be, I think, first of all, is shows your organization skills. And it just shows how dedicated you are to doing a perfect show. Because your show pretty much, to me, is perfect. I think you guys have a good layout. I love the way it's separated out. I love the detail that goes into it. You know when to bring a guest on and when not to bring a guest on. It's just every show's a little bit different, but at the same time, it's the same. And that's a, that's a knack you ladies have, and I greatly appreciate the way you do your show. Well, the organizational skills come from Diane as far as everything being laid out. And then some of the other things that have happened with our show that have just stayed there every episode were just by chance. It's just kind of started with the way we said it and we've, we've left it there. So yeah, like the don't tempt the spirits. It was just one day that came out of Denise's mouth. And the next thing you know, it became a part of the show, even ending the show with that's for you to decide. It was a, one of those happy accidents. And so it's just become a part of the show. I, uh, the spreadsheets is how I organize and that's basically how I managed to keep it all straight thankfully for me i have kind of a photographic memory so at this point i still can kind of remember everything that we've done but i know as we keep going along i'm gonna go am i just thinking that this sounds familiar because we've done it or is it just because i've heard the story before but yeah so we've, we've had a really good time the show has grown and morphed we're coming up on three years in october and so we've learned as we've gone along and we've taken advice from the listeners to things that they 
didn't like or that they did like. And so when people listen to some of our earlier episodes, they sound a lot different than our more recent ones because we've taken a lot of the stuff that we do at the beginning, moved it to the end because people, we really believed in building a community that's like a family. And so we wanted to include the listeners. And so we would be reading emails and sharing comments and things like that at the beginning of the show. Well, it started to get kind of long. And so people were complaining about that. So I was like, well, let's go ahead and move that to the back. But we, we knew we were never going to get rid of that moment. Noddy, Cause it's my favorite thing we do too, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the most impressive thing about your show and not a lot of people out that are listening, realize some of the accomplishments uh, that happened in the podcast world. And, you know, I, I read a, uh, an article that said that if you're, if you can put a new episode out and in the first 30 days you do 3,100 people listen to that show, you're in the top 10% of all podcasts out there. And that doesn't seem like that would be a huge number, but to get 3,100 people to tune in and listen to anything you do is really an accomplishment because only about 40% of America have ever listened to a podcast. So it is still a growing medium. What you ladies have accomplished with this show is outstanding because when we release this episode, we will have just went over 250,000 listens in a year. And I realize that that's an accomplishment. It really is an accomplishment. And, and I know a lot of people would kill to have those numbers, but then I look at, at, at you guys. You just went over 2 million downloads. Oh, man. And I'm thinking, at this rate, we'll be there in like eight years. <laughs> and you guys have done it in, in three years. That's and, amazing. And it's just, it's amazing to me to even fathom 2 million downloads. Good job, guys. That's amazing. <laughs> it is shocking to us, too. I mean, when I think back, there's a lot of people who, I always tell people, don't get hung up on numbers, because if you do that... You, you're going to let it get you down because sometimes it takes a while to build things up. Our very first month, we put out 10 episodes. So you're talking, there's, you're going to get, if you get 10 people listening to those 10 episodes, you're going to get 100 downloads right there. We didn't even have 1,000 downloads in our first month, and that was with 10 episodes. So when people start to say, oh, I could never imagine getting there or, you know, I only have this many downloads, I always cheer those new podcasts that get excited about, hey, we finally hit a thousand because I'm like, you know what? That is a huge accomplishment and you can get to where we are too. And what's funny is I'll look at other people, Jerry, and um, I was watching a video that Mike Rowe had made the other day and I guess he had some guy who was trying to challenge the fact that he was in the top percentile of all podcasts in Apple podcasts. And so he was on his computer and he was showing the different numbers over on, uh, he's, he hosts his show on Libsyn and he flips it around and I'm sitting there. I, I want to see his downloads. Can I see his downloads? And I couldn't quite make them out, but then he started talking about him and he's got 30 million downloads and he's getting, you know, way over a million a month. And so then you look at that and you go, well, I guess we're not kicking it that much. <laughs> so I guess it's just whoever you're comparing yourself to. 250,000 downloads at this point is amazing. A year into this, you're doing a great job. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, I, I try to look at the numbers enough. It, it can be depressing when you realize, wow, it's taken us a year to get, you know, mm -hmm basically five or 6,000 people to listen to an episode over, over the course of the month. And you, and you see people like Joe Rogan and, 
and uh, mm-hmm. Mark Marin and stuff that are getting basically a million a month. And it's like, wow, that's how does that happen? Yeah. But, you know, you we also appreciate every single one, every too. single oh one of gosh. them, because we feel like that we've. You know, we've done everything we can to try to market ourselves, to talk to people, to try to get them to listen. And then when they tell friends and stuff about it, and you start getting that snowball effect. That's really when it all comes into play. When, you know, we had somebody write us the other day and say, uh, you know, she listens to the show on a regular basis. She said she came into work and, and two other ladies that work with her were laughing. And she asked what they were laughing about. And she said they finally started listening to our show. And then they felt the need to write us. And it's like when you start having a place, you know, two, three, four people are all listening to the show. That's what it's all about. You know, anytime somebody thinks enough for you to refer your show to a friend, that's the ultimate compliment as far as we're concerned. Absolutely. Well, and remember, a lot of those downloads have more than one person listening to them as well. True. That's very true. Because like we know, we know a lot of parents that listen with their children because we've started to get we have our little our little baby spooks that run around, they're, they're adorable. They send us emails and stuff every so often. They're, they're like eight, nine, 10 years old. And so they listen as well. And then we have couples that listen. We have people that listen at work. So sometimes those downloads aren't reflective of how many people are actually listening to the show as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we've got a, a, in, in Louisville, Kentucky, there's a huge Ford plant uh, where they make uh, the Explorers and, and all that, the truck plant out there. And uh, we've got a big group of people that listen on the night shift out there. And I think it's blaring just on the radio for everybody to listen. But so yeah, you get one, one download, but you got eight or nine people listening to it. So I know exactly what you mean. Well, and the other thing you're looking at too, is we're cruising through the summer. Even our numbers are down for the summer. I'd be interested to see what happens to you now that you're going to have a year behind you. You've got all this material behind you and we're going to come into the Halloween season. I really am looking forward to see what happens for you in October because the problem is there are so many podcasts out there now. We had the problem when we first started of trying to explain to people what a podcast was and getting them to listen to podcasts. Well, that's not the issue now. Pretty much everybody knows what a podcast is. They probably listen to at least one of them, maybe serial or something. And now there's just so many. It's it's a huge fight to get yourself out there for somebody to actually see you and then have the time to listen to you because maybe they can only listen to two or three a day. And so it's like, but there's 20 of them they want to listen to. So the fact that you're getting that much listenership is a real tribute to what you're doing as well. Cause it, I mean, we are in a huge sea and as indie podcasts, we don't have the big voice behind us of an NPR or a wondering network or something like that. So we're just trying to do it all on our own. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, but again, I think you're doing a great job with it. Appreciate it. We got, uh, we actually are setting up uh, at the end of next month at Scarefest here in Lexington. And we're hoping that that actually will help us out. There should be, you know, 15,000 people from the area coming through and, you know, you can get your, your information and talk to as many people as possible. That could be a huge boost for us. So at least we're hoping going into Halloween season. Are you going to have a table there? Yep. yep. Cool. Yeah, it's first year they've actually done artist tables. They usually have the booths, but they, they had the artist table set up, and it's back there with all the celebrities and, and uh, the other booths. So we're going to be right there with everybody else. We're, we're hoping for a, a good turnout. I think you'll do really well. That should be fun. Let me pick your your brains about some episodes that I really like of yours and and have some discussion because these are shows. So a lot of these ones that you you ladies have done, we haven't done on our show. Um, Maybe will at some point in time, but 
One of the favorites was Virginia City. And I really liked that episode that you guys did because you, you brought on a guest. Yeah, I think you had two guests on that show. And they were talking about they had been there and they were telling all their adventures of it. And y'all were talking about it. What are your uh, takeaways from Virginia City? What you remember about that episode and, and some of the stuff that's went on there? For me, it sounds like a really fun city just because it seems like every building there must be haunted. <laughs> Anything that has that kind of old West feel, it sounds like when you go there, because we haven't been there, but it sounds like when you're walking down the street, it takes you right back to what it was like during the old West. And to me, that's a really cool thing. And then to think that all of these buildings that are lining the street, the history that they've seen, and now it seems like the spirits have attached themselves to that. And I don't know if it's the energy that was built up during that time, but what we really liked about that was having, I can't remember if we had, I know for sure two, maybe three, and a couple of them were paranormal investigators. So they've actually investigated some of those buildings. And so it was really neat to get their perspective of what kinds of experiences they had in those different buildings there. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I am really going off memory. Didn't one of the guests say there was some type of a tunnel system or, or something of that nature underneath part of the city? Yes, and I believe it was, they explained that a lot of the Chinese workers would be moved underneath that tunnel system because they didn't really want them up on the street. I'm not sure exactly why, but, and so, yeah, you could look down in the boards and you could actually see the area that's underneath the sidewalk there where it had the tunnels. I think my favorite part of the whole story was the uh, the haunted poker table. <laughs> You don't want to play a game on that one, huh? No, no, I don't. Uh, but I'm not good at poker. I don't really want to pay, play one at a casino either. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not no very poker, good. No tempting spirits and no poker in Virginia City. Yeah, you, I mean, you don't want to die over a poker game, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely not. Now, Denise, I know by listening to the show that you have uh, a fondness for haunted castles. I do. Especially over in Ireland. What's your, uh, what's your favorite story... Uh, about a haunted castle that one would be hard i know i really really want to go to edinburgh castle in scotland i have not had a chance to visit there yet but it looks absolutely amazing and some friends of mine one time we got into telling haunted um true haunted ghost stories and they had an experience in the um, underground in edinburgh and so I, i'm not sure if it was connected to the castle or not but they had a pretty pretty major paranormal experience that experience where they were underneath in the tunnel and they were doing a tour and all of a sudden one of the the little boys in their group just started screaming and running down the tunnel and they'd seen kind of a white mist in there and then when they caught up to him he was just terrified and he said something had grabbed him or hit him and and they were just like okay calm down calm down nothing's here you know and they didn't see anything but when they lifted up his shirt he had a handprint on his back oh dang and so I remember them telling that, and that was way before the podcast, and it was just like, whoa, you know, um, that is really, really creepy. And I'm not too sure I want to be in that particular tunnel, but I would love to, to visit that area and the castle, Edinburgh Castle. Yeah, I, I, I've never been to Europe, and, and I hear, you know, some of these other podcasts, I know Darkness Radio uh, is one, or Beyond the Darkness, whatever they're called now, you know, they, they do these trips 
for all the fans to get together and they've got European trips where they go over there and explore a castle and all that. And I thought, man, that would be so fun to just do as a group. Oh yeah. man, that would be fun. It would be a lot of fun. And based on the stuff that he's been doing with that, we're actually going to attempt to do our first trip, but we're going to do it here in America, down here in Florida. We're going to do the keys. Awesome. That would be awesome. You get a little Robert the Doll action going, maybe? We are going to yes. stop in and see Robert the Doll. I don't know if I'm going to get Denise to go in there and uh, look at him, <laughs> but I'm definitely going in. Yeah, so I might make sure that nobody weird comes down the sidewalk or anything like that, you know. Yeah, Somebody yeah. has to protect the door. Oh, absolutely. We talked about <laughs> doing something similar here uh, when we get a little bigger where we feel like that we've got a shot at getting enough people to do it because we're close enough to Waverly and to Bobby Mackey's, which, you know, <laughs> To where we could probably pull something like that off. That would be phenomenal. Well, I had thought, I'd been telling Diane, because I'm a little bit of our social director of the show, and so I'd been telling her, maybe on our fifth year we could do like a trip, and I really want to go to the Keys, and so I was kind of playing with the idea. And so we had 16 listeners meet up with us in at the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois. So the last breakfast, there were several of them that were there having breakfast with us, so I thought, well, I said, so would any of you ever be interested instead of, I said, sort of like what we did yesterday, just hanging out together, going and doing cemeteries and, and things. Would you be interested in doing a trip that would be like a long weekend if history goes bump and, you know, having fun together, going to cemeteries, doing ghost tours, and they were all ready to sign up right then. So uh-huh. they, they were like, well, next summer do it this. And so that are, that moved up by two years of what I was hoping. But I'm in the midst of planning that trip right now. I've already got the hotel contract put in. So oh, wow. I'm excited. Oh, that's exciting. I know I was when I was uh, talking to Jim Harold, he's set up to go on a, a paranormal cruise. Mm-hmm. And I think that that would actually be really cool to do. But I don't. I like the idea of, of doing the cruise and everybody doing the lectures and stuff, but I, I think I like the idea better of doing something like you guys are going to do when yeah. you're actually out at a place. Yeah. Well, and you know what the problem is for us, and I'm talking about the whole group here, is that we're little podcasts that don't have big names and things to go with it because anytime you t- try to do a conference or anything, there's a lot of money involved that you have to put up front. So basically – I think you're talking about doing the same kind of thing we are, where it's like, we're going to plan this trip and we want you guys to join us, but it's kind of like we're getting this block of rooms, but you got to set up your own thing and we're going to get us a bus to get us down there. But it's kind of like we're traveling together, but you're still on your own kind of thing. Cause Uh yeah, those cruises, I, you know, you got to pay all those speakers and everything. I think it's better to just kind of go and hang out together. (laughs) Now down the road, we're going to be doing a cruise. I, I'm the big dreamer when it comes to travel stuff. And but we won't be having a bunch of speakers and stuff like that. We'll mm-hmm. just be hanging out on the cruise. And if there's speakers, it'd probably be like us. And mm-hmm. maybe we would have some podcast friends who would come on with us, too, and have them speak as well. But I just when you get some of those big names in there, oh, yeah. they're going to want, you know, big dollars. And right. If you uh, for us, that just isn't happening. If you've never tried to plan something like that with a cruise, I can get with you uh, sometime off the air. Because doing the comedy thing, I've actually been involved with some of that stuff, and it's probably not as difficult as it initially sounds. Oh, cool. So yeah, We have to make Diane a believer. She's always the one that says, things can't happen, and then we'll be sitting on an airplane going somewhere. I said, now, what wasn't going to happen exactly? <laughs> and she just says, oh, shut up. <laughs> well, and you know, the thing that Jim Harold is doing, it's a group of them that are doing it. It's not just him. No, so, it, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, if we got a group of podcasts that did it, it would be much easier, too. Cool. 
Ladies, I want to thank you so much for everything you've done for us. I want to thank you for having such an awesome show and giving us so much enjoyment of listening to the show. Uh, I've got a heck of a commute on a regular basis, and you ladies help fill a lot of that time. So I appreciate that. I hope you get another 2 million downloads over the next couple of years and make it a little bit easier, maybe over this year. Oops, I don't want to set the bar too high, but 2 million this year, that's where I'm, put, that's where I'm putting it at for you guys. Um, but, you know, we appreciate everything you do, and we hope that comes across as, uh, like I said, you guys are our number one mentors, and, you know, we're saying it out here for everybody to hear. So yes. that's what we mean. Well, thank you so much, and we love what you guys are doing too, and you'll sometimes do a place that we've done. And I just love listening to your perspective on it too, because you have such great stories to share with it. And you have a really great way of telling the story. And I like how you break up your show into different things where you throw in the interviews, like what you're doing here and with other uh, podcasters or paranormal investigators and groups out there and such. So I think you're doing a great thing too. We appreciate it. And, and you know, I'm speaking for us when I say what I do, but, but the reality is I need to speak for everybody out there that's in the podcast world because, you know, we go on some of these podcast groups and it's obvious the love that every podcaster out there has for you guys. You you don't just help us. I, I mean, I, I'm making it sound like, you know, like we're special and, you know, but, but the reality of it is you spend a lot of time helping anybody who wants help and not everybody does that. And that, you know, you're almost looked at like, you know, mama bear out there. Everybody that <laughs> everybody in the group looks so much up to you for what you try to do for everybody in the podcast community. And I want to say a big thank you from everybody in the podcast community. Oh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> you gonna know, make, she's got tears, so don't, don't think going to make. Aww. Well, it, it's been my pleasure because I just, I believe, and I think that's what I hope is coming across. That's how much I believe in the indie podcast community. I just love people who sit down in front of their laptop with whatever microphone they can throw together for 50 bucks, 80 bucks, and just pour their hearts into something they love. And they put it out there for the world to listen to, which is a scary thing to do. And I just think it's an amazing community that we have out there. And I've really loved watching it grow the way it has and the way it supports each other. Because when we first started, there wasn't a podcast community out there. And we just kind of stuck our necks out there and we'd go over to one podcaster over here and say, hey, really like what you're doing uh, you want to listen to mine and I'll listen to yours and maybe we can promote each other's stuff on each other's shows. And there was only a handful of us out there. And so to see that there's this huge community that's been growing around independent podcasts is just amazing. And if I've had any part of being an example and guiding that, I, I'm very humbled about that and very happy to have done it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I want to end on this. I want both of you to give me the favorite, your favorite thing that's happened since you started the show, what, whether it be an accomplishment, whether it be a compliment from a listener or review, what is, what is the one thing at this point that you take away from the show that you've enjoyed the most? Wow. You know, I think, hmm, I mean, getting the comments that you just gave me that really, I mean, the thing that I think what has really shaped how we have guided ourselves in this show is, and I've said this on other shows, is when the podcast Bizarre States, 
talked about us in glowing terms and got us the boost that we got. It just, it showed me what you can do with your voice to help bring other people up. And if I could add another little thing in there, it's just, to me, it's been amazing watching the community that's grown around our podcast, that people uh, feel like a family. And that, to me, it touches me that people would feel like they're family. Yeah, for for me, it's the the relationship we have with our listeners, because that that's just been a lot of a lot of fun when people have gone out of their way to meet up with us. Like they'll be coming to Disney and say, I don't want to sound like I'm a creeper, but do you have a minute just to, to come say hi? And so we've really gotten some one-on-one time with our listeners, whether it be at the Haunted America conference, whether it's been on our road trips, um, you know, going just going and doing fun things as well as as doing haunted tours with them. And so the relationship with our listeners and how that's growing and the, the sense of family and community we have there is amazing. That's my, been my favorite thing to watch grow. But if I could say something that is a little bit of an ego boost, you know, we all as podcasters, I think we have like this bucket list of things that will, this is, if this happens, then we've arrived here. And then if this happens, we've arrived here. And so you kind of start checking things off, whether it's downloads that you're getting or when you go out and you start meeting people, it's like, Wow, people came to meet up with us. So you check off that list. Well, the one that we had was it would be so great if we were on a ghost tour and we didn't know that we were going to have a listener there because we have listeners that will meet up with us. But there'll be somebody on that tour that listens to our podcast that we don't know is going to be there. And you guys obviously know Mike Brown of Pleasing Terrors, and he gave us that opportunity. And it, it was a lot of fun because we were like, wouldn't it be neat if we were on a ghost tour sometime and this person listens to our podcast and we have no idea. And they're, you know, they're like, Hey, that's so great. And here it was Mike Brown, who anybody who's listening to podcasts that are scary and creepy, absolutely probably adore his podcast. Here he was our tour guide. And he just turns around and looks at us and sees that we're wearing our history goes bump t-shirts. And he's like, do you guys listen to that podcast? And we had a listener who was with us and she goes, they are the podcast. And I don't know that he even knows that he like checked off that bucket list thing for us. We both just looked at each other and went, there it is. That's very cool. Yeah. And and, and it's, it's even more cool that that person ends up being another high profile podcaster in this, in, in, in along the same genre. Cause Mike is, uh, he's one of the tops. He actually is. So. We love him. It is really funny when I think about that moment with us being on his tour and seeing where we are now and how good of friends we've become and supportive of each other that we are. And at that moment, here we all were standing together on a corner in Charleston, South Carolina, and we don't really know who each other is. And to see where we've come from there, it's very, very neat. Very cool. Thank you so yeah, much. The, for- only thing, the only thing that could have made that cooler is if we were standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. Oh, of course, 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 there's got to be an Eagles reference. Could have been worse. It could have been a country music reference, but you you were inching towards there. Eagles is close enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies, thank you so much for being on the air with us. We, uh, we, we're glad to have you on our anniversary show and, uh, I hope you have tremendous success moving forward. Ninja does too. He's uh, I was just going to say hi, Ninja, (laughs) (laughs) but thank you so much. And we'll be talking to you soon. Maybe we'll be seeing right. you in Florida next year in the Keys. Yes, if you guys ever come down here, let us know, and uh, we'd be happy to show you around. Yeah, and the Keys trip, if you're interested in coming, because I'm going to be putting out the sign-up soon, is going to 
um, hopefully be starting on July 13th and then um, coming back up to Miami to fly out that afternoon, the morning of the, that Monday. So, Cool. Awesome. Thank you, ladies. We love you so much. We love you guys, too. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank you. All right. Well, we're not going to uh, have a lot of chit-chat because we got so much to talk about. So what we're going to do, we're going to get into the story of The Conjuring. As I kind of alluded to earlier, I'm not going to be as specific as we are, a lot of details, because if I'm bringing Andrea on right afterwards and we have an hour-long interview with her, there's it would be pointless for me to say some of the stuff that I already know she covered. So if you don't if you got if you got a question about something I say or you think, "Hey, I wonder what happened here?" Mm-hmm. Trust me, it's going to get covered. I left it out on purpose. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at. So let's go ahead and start the true story of one of the scariest movies in the last 30 years, The Conjuring. Ooh. All right. That was terrible. Sorry. That's okay. okay. I'm not cutting it out though. Oh. I don't have time. Okay. Fine. Roger and Carolyn Perrin. They moved into this farmhouse, Harrisville, Rhode Island, January 1970, with their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, April, Cindy, and Christine. Now, the house was built back in 1736, but it was on some land that had been there since way before then. Of course, you know, all land has been there since. <laughs> I like, but but I mean, I mean the, the land was deeded to the owners way before that, from back in the 1600s. It was definitely a country home. It was surrounded by 200 acres. Over eight centuries of families have lived and died in that house. So this is like the perfect setup for something that's going on. The family came beforehand and kind of checked out everything, the barns, you know, Mm -hmm. the the house and everything. Nothing suspicious whatsoever. And that all changed like the very first day that they started moving in. The first day? The first day. They moved in the middle of an ice storm. And Andrea was actually taking a box inside. She... uh, goes past like the dining room area Mm -hmm. and the guy that had sold him the house was a guy named Mr. Kenyon. Uh, She tells us a little later in the interview that he was actually didn't want to move, but his um, son had built him a smaller house on his property. And he thought Mr. Kenyon was kind of getting a little bit older. He wanted to be able to, he wanted to keep an eye on him. Yeah. That's a uh, nice son. And he, yeah. And he really didn't want to move, but you know, so he's Mm -hmm. in there packing up the last of his belongings as they're moving in and they're Mm -hmm. in the dining room. And, Andrea walks in and she's, you know, she sees Mr. Kenyon. She sees another guy that she thought was dressed kind of oddly in 1800s clothes. And she didn't want to be rude. So she, you know, basically said, hey, good morning to him. And he just ignored her. And um, so he was rude. Yeah, he was rude. <laughs> and she goes in and she asked her mom, you know, hey, who's who's the guy back there with Mr. Kenyon? And she said, oh, nobody. His son's coming later, but there's nobody in there now. Oh. Well, this went on like every sister coming in. Who's the guy? Who's the guy? Who's the guy? And then finally her last sister came in and she said, hey, uh, there was a guy in there with Mr. Kenyon, but he just disappeared. So all the sisters are the only ones that saw this guy. Every one of them saw him except for, the, I think, the very youngest one, Cindy, who was in in the kitchen helping her mom. Oh, wow. So, you know, the guy's moving out. Keep in mind, like I said, this is the middle of an ice storm, a swirling ice storm. Yeah, so it was who pretty does nasty. that? Who moves an ice well, storm? They didn't really, well, they bought the house back in December, but they didn't want to move during Christmas. So Okay. But anyway, well, I mean, you're just not going to move in just because it's, you know, an well, ice storm. I guess that's true, but. I think we last time we moved, it was the middle of an ice storm. Oh, that's true. That's very true. But so they go ahead and, and uh, Mr. Kenyon takes her dad outside and 
in this ice storm, takes him outside because he wants to talk to him for a few minutes mm-hmm. away from the family, and he tells him, hey, just for the safety of your family, keep all the lights on at nighttime. Mm. Which was a really strange thing to say that felt like you had to take somebody out in the middle of an ice storm for, but what they felt like had happened was basically he's telling them, hey, it's a big house, it's really dark, the bathroom's downstairs, all the bedrooms are upstairs, if you don't have lights on, somebody could fall down the steps and get hurt. Is this stupid? Did they have electricity then? Yes. This was the 1970s. Oh, I thought you were saying back in the 18th century still. No. No, they moved in, I will reiterate, in January of 1970. Sorry, folks. My bad. So. There's none of my stupid-ass remarks. Yeah, I think think, uh, old Ben Franklin and his kite had taken place way before 1970. Well, sorry. So. Oh, God. (laughs) Andrea will be so proud of your remarks. (laughs) (laughs) So, they go, and he tells them that, but. He's not thinking anything different than that. It's, you know, after all this stuff happens, they have a better idea of what his little warning meant. Yes. And there was even a situation where, like, you know, and and Andrea talks about this in in detail, but her dad just never really saw anything to do with this guy. And there Mm -hmm. was at one point where he was talking to Mr. Kenyon in the uh, dining room, and he was actually trying to, you know, talk to him about staying on. He was going to work out a deal to stay with him since he didn't want to leave. Oh. And, yeah. And they were working it out while all the girls were in the room. And they could all see this same ghost in there, but his, their dad never could see him. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, the dad, cool. did, did they tell dad and dad just didn't believe him? I don't know. Huh. I don't know if they told him or not. But I know Andrea talks a little more about that situation in okay. detail coming up. Um, Mr. Kenyon obviously was a super nice guy. And the, and the gentleman that they saw... He appeared one other time that I know of, and it was the day that they were moving out 10 years later. So he was there when they were moving in, and he was there when they were moving out. Hmm. Now, the first, that was the first really signs that something was happening. As soon as they were moving in, there was already a ghost that they had seen. Mm -hmm. Within the first few nights, the children all started hearing things in their bedroom. And one of the main things, and this is probably one of the scariest things, the youngest daughter, Cindy... She came into Andrea's room one night and said that she was hearing a bunch of people talking. Mm-hmm. And they were all saying the same thing, but it was a bunch of different people saying the same thing. Oh. And what they were saying was, there are seven soldiers buried in the wall. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out that there were several ghosts in the house. And like I said, there's more to that story. Once again, Andrea talks about this. So if I don't get into these details, I'm yeah. not leaving you hanging for no. You'll get your answers by the end of the show. But I want to make sure people are clear because we're usually so detailed. Mm-hmm. But turns out there were several ghosts in the house. And what I wanted to do was touch on those. Yeah. Um, because I know Andrea doesn't speak a whole lot about most of the ghosts. But most of the ghosts were friendly. Obviously, you had the gentleman that we were just talking about. Then you had Mrs. Arnold. Mrs. Arnold was one of the original owners of the properties, and she supposedly hung herself in the barn at the age of 93. How does she have the strength, the muster, hanging herself at 93, I wonder? I mean, how much muster does it take to step off of a chair or whatever they do? I don't know. Why would she do that at 93? <laughs> I have no idea. So anyways... 
she uh, was one of the original owners, like I said. That she, what she would do, according to the, the parents, is she would tuck the children in and actually even kiss them on their forehead. The ninety-three-year-old so, yeah. lady did that. Yeah, this is what this is how they determined. Aww. They determined later down the road that this was who that was based on some information that Carolyn, the mom, actually had looked up. Oh, that's so sweet. Johnny Arnold, another one of the Arnolds. This was actually the Arnold estate. So okay. these were both people who had, had lived there at one point in time. He was said to have hung himself also in the attic uh, back in the 18th century. He would sometimes play with the kids' toys. He would uh, watch them when they were outside playing. He would be watching them from the win- inside the window. Mm-hmm. And they became so used to him being around, they actually nicknamed him Manny. Oh. Because I heard her say because uh, <laughs> her sisters just were young and they just wasn't really creative. And it was a man, so Manny. Oh, there you go. <laughs> They had one that they called the sweeping ghost. They would hear like a sweeping in the background. Mm -hmm. And then they would eventually come up and they would find a broom that was leaning up against the wall and a nice little pile of dirt had been swept up. Well, I'll be dang. Yeah. I don't guess there was a dustpan ghost. I guess not. Or that would have finished the job. Shoot. I mean, it's one thing I can't stand. It's a ghost to start something and not Not finish it. it. Yeah. True. (laughs) Unfortunately, not all of these ghosts were of the nice, sweet kind. Some were just plain evil. And there were spirits that would pull the girl's hair in the middle of the night. They would tug on her limbs. I mean, they would bang on doors so loud that it would rattle the whole house. Um, I've heard that there were doors that would open, and then no matter how hard you tried to slam it, they wouldn't shut, almost like they were off-center or something. Well, that's what really ghosts are supposed to do, rattle their chains and all that crap. I've heard Andrea Perrin actually say that... uh, there was a time when there was a big sleepover at their house, and her youngest sister, Cindy, uh, I could be wrong on this, I, thought, I think it's Cindy, but um, yeah, it was Cindy. Anyway, the youngest sister, Cindy, was sleeping in the other room. It got kind of hot and stuff mm-hmm. because there were so many kids, so she decided to come in there and sleep in her room. When she came in, she saw Andrea laying on her back, which right off the bat was not a the, because she always slept on her left side. Mm-hmm. So when so she saw her on abnormal. the back, it was already something was abnormal. She said there was like a black entity, almost like a cloud or or a mist or something that was over top of her, like literally almost laying on her. And Maybe trying to suck her breath out. I have no idea. I think you're getting that confused with cats and babies on the old wives' tales. Oh, but she said that the the thing saw her. And noticed her, and it like zipped off of her, went right past her, and when it did, it like grabbed her leg, started pulling her down the steps, and she had the um, uh, common sense to just kind of and the awareness to kind of just grab onto one of the banisters or something, and it kept her from going down. This thing kept pulling. She was screaming, and she screamed so much to the point to where her voice was completely shot the next day, but Ooh. nobody in the house heard no, her. Nobody Even heard though it? Andrea was literally four, five, six feet wow. away from her room. that's so crazy. And uh, she had bruises and stuff all over oh, her oh, body I'm the sure. next day. And like I said, cause this thing was dragging her down the steps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd, I'd heard a host from another show say, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe she was sleepwalking mm-hmm. or maybe she thought that she was yelling and, but the reality of it is, Andrea said there was people, you could yell, there was all kinds of times where people would be yelling in the house and nobody else would hear them. And she said Cindy referred to it as being in her bubble. Oh. So this was a common occurrence for people to have something happen and be screaming and not a single person even hear them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the, probably the, the scariest situations that, that had occurred 
uh, with Cindy, as it as it turns out later on in life, and and these are all stories, way more stories than this in Andrea's books. So I would urge mm-hmm. uh, anybody to get these books. But she said there was an entity that would kind of cry out in the middle of the night. Uh, it would be like "Mama, Mama." That's my impression. I, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But <laughs> I just know the second Mama was longer than the first Mama, <laughs> and then your facial expression. <laughs> you know half my face don't work. <laughs> Covered this on the last show. <laughs> One of the spirits was so bad that it's not even really talked about. Um, Andrea really won't go into any details. What she did say was that, let's just say that it's a bad male spirit in a house with five little girls. Oh, crap. So you could probably imagine. Yeah. Um I think she talks a little bit in the interview mm-hmm. that we do afterwards about, elaborates a little more on the situation. Now, when it comes to these bad entities, most people seem to think that Bathsheba Sherman, which was featured in the movie, obviously, mm-hmm. they think Bathsheba Sherman may be the main culprit. And I thought we would talk a little bit about Bathsheba so if you haven't seen the movie, or even if you had, you got some background on the true life Bathsheba Sherman. She was born Bathsheba Th- Thayer. Sound like I was talking with a lisp. Did that, what is her last name? Thayer. Thayer? Thayer. Like T-H-A-I-R? Oh, 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 oh. Gotcha. Yeah, Thayer. Thayer. Uh-huh. But Bathsheba Thayer actually lived in the uh, property next to this house. It was the Sherman Farm, and this was obviously the Arnold Farm. Back in the early 19th century, she was born in 1812. She married Justin Sherman in, or Judson Sherman in 1844. Bathsheba gave birth to four kids, four babies. Three of them died before the age of four years old. Oh. The rumor goes that Bathsheba was caring for an infant. Um, Nobody's really sure if it was her infant Mm -hmm. or if it was somebody's kid that she was watching, but she was caring for an infant. And the infant died. And when they did an autopsy on the baby or whatever it was, inspection that they did back then, they found that it a knitting needle had been stabbed, I guess kind of uh, impaled would be a better term, into its skull at the base <gasps> of the spine, and the baby actually died of convulsions. Oh, my gosh. That obviously comes into play. Uh, later on, because some of the, if you remember from the movie mm-hmm. and in real life, some of the antics that happened to uh, the mom during this situation was uh, some stabbing in the legs of something that looked like a knitting needle. Oh, needle. poor baby. One of the reasons they made this connection that they think mm-hmm. uh, it was Bathsheba. So, back to Bathsheba. She was charged with manslaughter, but due to a lack of evidence, the case was dropped and never even actually made it to trial. I mean, I was going to say, how can they prove that she did it? They couldn't. But I mean, I know you just what you just said, right. but hmm. but the public felt like she was guilty, and they accused her of being a witch. Which early eighteen hundreds, you know yeah. how that goes. This wasn't too long since the Salem witch trials, and they accused her of being a witch. Uh, some people said that they thought she sold her soul to the devil. Many went as far as to say that she sacrificed all of her children that had died to the devil for everlasting beauty. Apparently, she that's another reason she wasn't real liked. She was supposedly very attractive. And a lot of the guys used to kind of turn their heads at her. And, of course, the women weren't going to like that. Well, I don't like her name. Well, she can't help her name. 
Well, I know. But what if she came on the show and said she didn't like your laugh? I would say the same thing. Well, she can't control her laugh. Oh, I know. Sorry. Anyways. She lived out the rest of her life pretty much in torment um, mm. by herself because nobody wanted to have anything to do with her. She supposedly became a really, really kind of kind of a tyrant to her staff. She was like a really bad, tortured them a little bit. I mean, I'm not tortured like, you know, she was just really a bitch, more or less. See, now why you got to be like that? You already had nobody around you, so you're going to run your staff off as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, that's... Back then, servants and staff were pretty much, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like they had much many options well, back in I the mean, day. I mean, I guess. She died in 1985. The coroner said that her body was one of the strangest he'd ever encountered. It was almost like it was stone. It turned to stone. No. Which fueled more rumors that that was part of the, the deal for her everlasting beauty or something, mm-hmm. that the devil had her body turned to stone when she died. Uh, what she actually died of was a stroke. Really? Paralysis from a stroke. Oh, dang. How how old was she again? That was in 1985. Oh, that's right. So she was in her 70s. So 73 or so. Which, you know, back in 1885, that's a ripe old age. I don't know. The only thing I know is I ain't complaining about my life because these these chicks back in those days had a hard way to go. Now, Bathsheba, apparently, like I said, they think she may be the main culprit in in most of the, the bad stuff that went on. She really took a liking to Roger. She she thought he was the cat's meow. The only thing that Roger would experience were the good things. Like she would, you know, have little soft touches and caresses of his hair and stuff like that. Carolyn, on the other hand, Carolyn wasn't so lucky. Um, I think it was probably jealousy involved, but Bathsheba seemed to have it in for Carolyn from the beginning. Carolyn began to do some research on the house and she found out about all the deaths and the uh, supposed suicides and all that on the property. And then she actually started to change a little bit. She started talking a little different, using words and stuff that were used back in like the 1800s and not really in the 1970s, you know, before they had electricity. Oh, Um, whatever. (laughs) Sorry, my bad. So she started having all these little physical attacks. We talked about the situation of being some stabs and stuff like that from like knitting needles and mm-hmm. and, a, and a bunch of other stuff that we'll get into in a little bit. And, and I let uh, Andrea talk about it a little more in the interview. But after about four years of all this stuff going on, they contacted some paranormal researchers from a local college. And those that paranormal researcher came in. He experienced some stuff in the house. And it kind of scared the crap out of him. And he's the one that actually contacted the Warrens. Oh, interesting. Uh, so the Warrens, you know, the, everything you'll see in the movies and a lot of the accounts you'll see says that the parents actually reached out to the Warrens, and that's not true. Oh, and, so uh, that wasn't their first choice. No, no, that was, well, I mean, it's just they didn't even know who the Warrens were. Yeah. You know, this college kid that, you know, was part of it, he actually knew who they were, so he contacted them. Gotcha. So eventually... You know, the Warrens came, they met with them, they'd, you know, done some some conversations back and forth. And one night, sorry, the Warrens actually brought in a priest, a medium, and a camera crew because they wanted to document all this, and they wanted to have a seance. Now, in the movie, obviously, they had an exorcism. That didn't take place. There was a seance that took place. I'm not going to tell you a lot about the seance because Andrea goes into detail about this, and it's a more fascinating story than anybody will ever realize. Mm. This definitely was not in the movie. We'll leave it at that. But, you know, they they had a situation to where this medium kind of opened some doors, 
that probably shouldn't have been opened. And I'm not talking the cellar door. I'm talking like paranormal doors. This place already was a portal as far as they were concerned. And, you know, these things started creeping through as she's doing this seance and and bringing stuff up. Her mom starts speaking, Carolyn, uh, Andrea's mom, she starts speaking in words that are not even a language here on earth. It's just these weird... You know, sounds and and you know syllables that that aren't forming words that anybody actually knows. Then something incredible happened, and all I'm going to say is that Carolyn's chair levitated, and then her and the chair were tossed twenty feet into the next room. Oh wow! And unfortunately, all the children seen this. Uh, Dad went through the roof and pretty much through the Warrens and the whole group of people. Oh, you mean he got mad? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I guess technically in this, and I probably should have clarified, being yeah. a haunted house story, he could have went through the roof. Well, that's true. So he got mad because he, of what was happening? He got pissed off at what was happening and what just happened in the Carolyn, so he threw the whole group out. Oh. Uh, this is the story that you definitely have to hear Andrea tell them, yeah. because, uh, like I said, it's definitely was not in the movie the way that it really happened. And so things got really worse after this, I guess, because this medium, and that's what really pissed everybody off, is this medium left this door to this portal open and you know like i said they already felt like this was a portal anyway because of all the spirits were there oh, well now they're just letting stuff come you know oh, man. in and out and obviously at this time carolyn really started getting the worst of it she started pretty much wasting away and wasn't eating wasn't you know just it was just mm-hmm. really rough on her she was losing tons of weight just kind of sickly all the time but then one night she had kind of an epiphany. Uh, Andrea went to fix her some food, and she was kind of just looking into the dining room. And what she saw was not their dining room. She saw a, a stove that had been, you know, not used in 100 years, you know, a chimney that had been blocked up and an old stove that had been bricked up. She saw people using it. She saw a table that wasn't theirs with a family sitting there and a mom fixing dinner, and some people actually saw her. And they looked and kind of nudged and pointed to her. And it was at that time that she kind of realized that she was seeing, you know, stuff from a different dimension. Oh. <laughs> That's when she realized, hey, this is definitely a portal. That's also a story that Andrea is going to get into detail on. That's why I kind of skimmed over it. Um, at that point, her mom started getting a lot better, started dealing with stuff. Ten years after they moved in, uh, she told her husband that she couldn't last another winter in that house mm-hmm. and they decided to move to Georgia. And, um, you know, it wasn't a consensus. You would think after everything that went on that really? everybody would be like, let's get the hell out of here. But, uh, Andrea didn't want to move. Uh, some of her other sisters didn't want to move. Matter of fact, one of her sisters actually stayed there and, um, the people who bought it, she stayed on to be the caretaker until they found somebody else to take the job and everything. Mm-hmm. So some of them really loved being in that house. Uh, her mom wasn't one of them and she wanted to be out. So they moved in this great place in, uh, in Georgia and they still live in Georgia to this day. Andrea now lives in, uh, um, most of them live right there, right mm-hmm. on the right road from each other. They're all pretty much near each other again. Well, that's but good. Andrea, Andrea moved to Florida, so they're not, she's not too far away from them, but that's kind of the story of the parents as I understand it. Okay. Now we're going to hear from the person herself. Andrea Parent, she lived through all this. She wrote the books. She's got a trilogy of books out. The books are called House of Darkness and House of Light. Her mom actually uh, named that book, and she doesn't cover it in our interview, but I've heard her say before 
that it, the reason they titled it that is because they were some of the worst years of their lives, mm-hmm. but it was also some of the best years of their lives yeah. in that house. So, you know, love conquers all in her words. And in the end, much like the movie, that's the one thing they got out of it is that, you know, in the movie, love is what conquered everything. And in true life, that's really the way it worked out for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody mm-hmm. always said, well, why did you wait 10 years? These people moved into this house and sunk every bit of money they oh, had yeah. into it. You just they can't could, get up yeah, and move. They couldn't just move, which is the case with a, with a lot of these situations. But that's why it took two, 10 years. And then uh, there's some cool stories that happened after they moved to Georgia, which Andrea will tell you about. So rather than waste uh, time on it, let's just get right into this interview because I'm excited for you guys to hear it. It's my favorite interview I've done since we've done the show. And I I sit here talking to her. I've seen so many interviews. And as I'm, I'm talking to her in my head, I'm like, I'm not just listening to a YouTube video or something. I'm actually talking to we, the lady that was involved yes. in one of the most famous hauntings in yes. America. Yes, and we thank her so much for giving us her time um, to spend with us. I mean, we appreciate it more than you could ever know. She's an absolute sweetheart. She also had a recent family tragedy that she talks about, and she's also going to tell you some stuff that I haven't heard anywhere before she told us about some screenplays that she's working on to tell the true story of what happened and you'll hear in this interview why they didn't do the exact true story uh in the conjuring they had to tone it down a lot okay and but what she is going to be doing is like i said on this screenplay that she's just getting ready to turn in in november you're going to find out that they're eventually going to tell the exact stuff that's in her book but the trilogy books house of darkness house of light she's she tells you how you can get it on there and go ahead and uh, and check that out. All right, a big surprise guest for you guys. I know I've been kind of keeping this a secret because I wanted to get it under wraps. But I want to please welcome author Andrea Perrin to the show. And most of you guys will know her as the oldest daughter from the movie The Conjuring. This was based on her family's real-life accounts from basically the, the book that Andrea wrote. And it was a true story behind the Conjuring. It was the House of Darkness, House of Light trilogy. Got three books on there. Andrea, thank you so much for taking some time to be on our show. Oh, it's my pleasure entirely. I'm so grateful that you asked me. Oh, it's no problem whatsoever. Your story is absolutely fascinating. On our show, we talk about scary subjects and true life uh, stories behind some of these movies. And without a doubt, this movie and your family story is the most requested, which is why we've saved it to our anniversary show to do. And I think being able to tell the story in our words, but then having the real life account of you right afterwards is going to be a very great thing for our listeners. So they're going to be thrilled to death. And like I said, we want to thank you for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. It really is. And believe me when I tell you, you can ask me anything. I never, uh, I never hold back. There are no questions off the table. Awesome. Well, Andrew, let's let's start with this. Obviously, we're going to find out in your own words some of the stuff that happened in your family story. We're going to talk about your your books in just a little bit, but I wanted to kind of start with the movie aspect of it and kind of evolve into the, into the books. Now, first of all, I would say this is probably an understatement, but you weren't exactly thrilled of the choice of director when they chose uh, James Wan, were you? 
No, my head blew off my shoulders and it made an incredible mess. And my mother had to clean it up. Uh, I, I was just like, and you know, and it wasn't fair of me because I had never seen any of James's films. Um, I knew them by reputation only. And when I got a call from Hollyweird and the executive producer uh, told me, and he was thrilled, he was thrilled to tell me that James Wan had been brought on as the director of The Conjuring and uh, I, I think his ears are still ringing these years later from the comments that came flying out of my mouth, uh, not the least of which was, oh, my God, you just hired the king of slasher porn to make my intimate family story. Um, he, I don't, I think he swallowed his tongue. He didn't talk for a while. Uh, you know, I was... Uh, I, I was just out of my mind. I thought, oh, my God, this is exactly what I had hoped would not happen, that they would get somebody serious, that they would get somebody that could handle this material. And all of the judgments that I made about James were all incorrect, every single one of them. Um, now, the producer tried to explain to me that James was an aficionado of the work of Ed and Lorraine Warren, um, that he was absolutely enthralled with my books, uh, that he was enthralled with the story, because two of the three books were already out before, um, uh, before they started filming. And so, and in fact, the, um, the screenwriters tried to integrate elements, with my permission, tried to integrate elements into the story. And Warner Brothers sent the script back seven times and said, tone this down or it will run people out of the theater. And so uh, what you see in The Conjuring is actually uh, a conjured up story of two uh, screenwriters who tried their best to get to the heart of the matter and were spurned. Um, they were uh, really not allowed to write the story uh, in a more authentic way because the people at New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers that were familiar with the real story thought that um, the world wasn't ready for it. And, uh, and in, a, in a lot of ways, I'm happy about that now because uh, I'm writing the screenplays to, I have a three movie deal for the all three books. And I'm writing the screenplay so that these movies will be exact to the story, will follow the story absolutely perfectly. And, um, and that wouldn't have happened if The Conjuring had already told the story for me. So, um, I, you know, I have my, my, great, my grateful moments. You know, I mean, you know me well enough to know that I often say everything happens for a reason everything, even the bad stuff, or what we perceive to be the bad stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, so now I am free, absolutely free to tell my story my own way to go on film, and it won't look anything like The Conjuring. Um, there are a lot of things about The Conjuring that are excellent, absolutely excellent. First and foremost, I thought James did a remarkable job. Um, I, it was very difficult material to work with. Uh, even though a lot of it was fictionalized, it was based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren, so therefore it was based on a true story. Um, and, of course, you know, Ed and Lorraine put their own spin on it, 
uh, and they only came to the house a few times over about 18 months, and we lived there for 10 years. So many, many things happened in that house that Ed and Lorraine never even knew about. Um, the reason that Bathsheba Sherman is the culprit in the film is because that's the notation that Lorraine Warren made in her notes. Um, she walked into the house for the first time uh, in 1973, uh, the day before Halloween. And she walked over to our old black stove and put her hand on the corner of it. And she said, I sense a malignant presence in this house. Her name is Bathsheba. Well, to her credit, there's no conceivable way that she could have known anything about Bathsheba or anything about her story. So she picked up on something. But then she proceeded to blame anything uh, that was negative that happened in the house on Bathsheba. And the fact is that the spirit that was haunting and taunting my mother was dead long before Bathsheba was born. She didn't even, she wasn't even born until 1812. And the spirit that was uh, after my mother and trying to run her out of the house died in the 1700s. So it, um, you know, it's unfortunate. And yet I have to look at it this way. Had it not been for the conjuring, my story, our family memoir would be languishing in obscurity like a thousand other books um, on the subject of the paranormal. Uh, it never would have found its way uh, into the public eye in such a way because of the power of the medium of film. Um, everybody that worked on that movie put their whole heart and soul into it. Lily Taylor, I thought, did an extraordinary job. I thought it was unfair that she was overlooked for any awards for that role because anybody who's seen the film saw that she really threw herself into it in every conceivable way. But there was no exorcism in our house. And that was the one thing that Lorraine was most upset about the film was I, I saw it with her three months before it opened. Uh, Warner Brothers kindly brought us out to California for a private screening of it uh, prior to the premiere. And during that scene, she's like, Ed would never have done that. She leaned over to me and she had tears in her eyes, bless her heart. And she said, Ed would never have done that. Ed was trained to assist in exorcisms. He would never. I'm like, I just patted her on the hand and I said, dear Lorraine, it's only a movie. It's just a movie. There was a script. There, these people are acting out the parts that were written for them. And, you know, and the real story is out there. The real story is out there. Because she knew it was not an exorcism. It was a seance. And it was uh, something that she and her husband uh, I, I think in a well-meaning way, uh, but it, uh, uh, but a way that backfired, um, you know, kind of foisted this on my parents. And I thought that the medium that they brought with them, and the priest was a very nice man. He was very kind and gentle. But the medium that they brought with her, uh, I don't think she knew what she was doing. And she committed um, what I consider to be spiritual malpractice. Uh, she threw open wide the doors to the netherworld in, uh, well, as she conjured spirits to invite everyone in to see if she could identify who the problem child was, who the troublemaker was. And in so doing, she allowed something into the house that immediately latched onto my mother um, and in a very insidious way uh, spoke through her and then picked her up and tossed her like a rag doll 20 feet from the middle of our dining room into the middle of our parlor 
And when her head hit the floor, everyone that was present in that house thought they had just seen Carolyn Perrin die. It was very serious. It was the most horrifying moment of my life. I will never, ever forget it. And I thank God every single day that my mother has absolutely no memory of it. Now, I've heard um, that at that point in time, that actually caused an altercation between uh, Ed Warren and your father. Is that correct? Yeah, well, when my mom got tossed, um, her her chair levitated uh, off the ground, and then in a split second, and I do mean to tell you in a fraction of a second, she went from the middle of the dining room into the middle of the parlor. It was a good 20-foot flight for her. Uh, she was still in the chair she was sitting in. I mean, the whole chair went. And um, my father immediately tried to run to her side, and Ed reached out and grabbed my father by the arm to stop him. And when he did that, that was a big mistake, because when he did that, my father turned around and cold cocked him and broke his nose and took him to the floor. Um, And it was uh, bloody, and it was messy, and I mean, that was literally the only blood, other than the time my mom got stabbed in the leg, Uh, with what she thought was a needle and the time that she got impaled in the hip with a tomato steak. Um, You know, my mom endured several physical attacks in that house and one in the barn uh, and one in the yard. Um, And so, you know, the the bleeding and the, you know, coughing up blood and, you know, uh, spirit vomiting blood into her mouth. Okay, that's great for, you know, Hollywood special effects, but that's not what happened. Uh, And the only blood that I ever saw that was not attached to one of my mother's wounds um, was uh, the night that my father punched out Ed Warren. And, um, you know, it it was, uh, it it was, I I mean, the, the negative energy in that house that night was literally palpable. It's as if you could taste it in your hard palate, you know, it was. My father, I don't think I've ever seen him that angry before. He was absolutely livid. He was out of his mind. He didn't want them there in the first place. Um, And, of course, it was way before the days of cell phones, and they had called early in the afternoon. He was coming home from a trip that evening, and all he wanted to do was put his feet up and watch the Red Sox game. That's all he wanted to do. And when my mother told him that the Warrens were coming, he was really upset um but even she didn't know that they were bringing an entire entourage with them so when they all showed up and a priest and a medium and cinematographers and all their state-of-the-art equipment and an audio specialist with the big old reel-to-reel you're probably old enough to remember those from way back yeah and um you know it was just like a a small army of paranormal researchers And my father was about as displeased as I've ever seen him. And it took Ed and the priest about an hour to talk him into allowing a seance to go forward. Meanwhile, my mother, who was um, really absorbing that negative energy um, and feeling very put upon, uh, started to just shut down. Uh, She kind of went almost into a catatonic state and um, she was led over to the table. My father didn't want to participate in the event. Um, You know, Ed and Lorraine basically told him that he had to. 
Uh, and then it, it just degenerated into a, a really, uh, a very frightening uh, scenario. And it really, really did almost cost my mom her life. No, uh, I... It took my father over an hour to bring her back to consciousness. And the one thing that I do resent is that while my father was throwing the Warrens and the cinematographers and everybody out of the house, um, he wanted me to call an ambulance, and Mrs. Warren told me not to. Uh, she didn't want any police there. She didn't want any. Uh, she didn't want anybody there to know what was going on. And um, you know, meanwhile, my father was completely focused. It was a. It was an untenable position to put a child in. Uh, but my father was able to uh, revive my mother. She had been knocked unconscious and obviously had a terrible concussion. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a very long night, my friend, a very, very long night, longest night of my life. Now, obviously, Andrea, they didn't include that part uh, of what happened into the movie because, you know, they're trying to make you know, three, four, five spinoffs, and and they're and they're basing them basically around the Warrens. So that's not something right. they were wanting to show. But right, wouldn't have reflected well on them. But Mrs. Warren remembered, and when I saw her privately in in California, we did talk at length. And uh, she's aware that I'm aware that she didn't include the truth in her notes, and she's also aware that I'm aware that she. Uh, took my mother's notebook with all of her historical information, her documentation, uh, her birth and death records, everything that she had done for research on the house, all of her sketches, uh, all of the notes that she had made about her different sightings uh, and things that we had seen. And Mrs. Warren asked her for her notebook so that she could go make copies of everything that was in it. And that was... Uh, 40 plus years ago and we've never seen it again and I was told by a pretty reliable source that my mother's notebook was sold uh, with the rights to the story oh wow I got two more quick questions about the uh, the movie and then we're going to move on to some real life uh, accounts when you saw the movie you noticed some things in it that you like to call cosmic kisses can you touch on a couple of those for me uh, yes, when uh, I was 13 years old, um, my mom's friend Fran came over and, and we all loaded into her van and went to a uh, to a flea market in the next, it was an outdoor flea market, and um, it was my birthday, or my birthday was the next day or something like that, and while we were there, uh, I saw a drawing, a picture of, uh, it was a painting, and it could have been, you know, paint by number for all I know, but it was just a painting on a, a hard canvas of a white cat. It was a folk art drawing. And um, it was 50 cents. And my poor mother didn't have 50 cents to buy it for me for my birthday. She had already bought me my birthday gift. Dad was out of town. She was out of money. And, um, and Mrs. Um, Cedarback bought it for me. Fran Cedarback bought it for me and gave it to me as my 13th birthday gift. And I've had it all these years. And can you imagine my surprise when, as I'm watching this film for the first time, the camera pans around into Shanley Caswell's bedroom, the young lady that played me, and there's the exact same print sitting up on the mantle board 
of her bedroom and they never nobody working on that film knew about that picture nobody had ever seen it i didn't include it in the books it was an absolute unknown to them and yet there it was and so i talked to julie um the set designer and after uh after i saw the film and i was like uh there were several things that you included in the film um, that were identical to objects that we had at the farm. Um, and she just looked at me and she said, cosmic forces. <laughs> and it was um, out of uh, 25,000 different uh, plus, 25,000 plus different uh, prints, uh, old-fashioned colonial type prints of wallpaper, they chose the one wallpaper that we had in the house and they never saw any photographs of the inside of the house. Um, the scene where my sister Cindy goes running through the house, carrying a set of wind chimes to go hang on the back porch. We had an identical set of those wind chimes hanging on our front porch. Um, there were uh, a number of things that were uh, included in the film that they couldn't have known anything about. Um, and yet there they were. And so for me, that's kind of the, the universe telling me it's okay. You know, it, it, they did a good job. James did a good job. James handled those young girls. We were so concerned that they were going to end up being traumatized in much the same way we were <laughs> when we were kids, you know, just by being involved with the film and making the movie. Um, but he handled them with such great, tender, loving care, made sure they had parents there at all times. Um, you know, made sure that they always, always understood, no matter how scary it got, that it's only a movie. I mean, he really did an outstanding job with the girls. And I thought he brought a very masterful and very creative touch to the film. Uh, I really do think it's, you know, not that I have anything to compare it to, mind you, because The Conjuring is the only scary movie I've ever seen in my life. Um and only because I had to <laughs> over and over and over again. Uh, but, you know, the the fact is that uh, it's, it's a really um, artfully made film. And it has, uh, it, of course, it's got its glitches and it's got the, you know, there have been plenty of people that have criticized it and said, oh, yeah, but, but, but. But, you know, and, and that's fine. I don't care. That's what people do. That's what movie critics get paid to do. You know, fine. Go ahead and criticize it if you want. But um, I thought that it covered uh, our story in very broad strokes, and it did a very good job in that respect. And that is that good conquers evil, love conquers fear, and the parent family endured an extreme haunting that they all survived. And those are impressions that people who see the film are left with. And those are all correct. So, um, you know, I'm, I am grateful that they put the time and the attention into making the film that they did. But I also think that it's a, a kind of a stunning realization that uh, they, too, were afraid. They were afraid to tell the real story. They were afraid that, you know, we're all fear-based carbon units in one way or another. But they really were mortified by the real story. And James Wan was so scared uh, after reading my books that he refused to even go see the actual original house and ended up choosing a house to film in that was eight states away <laughs> in North Carolina. 
uh, wouldn't even go to Rhode Island, didn't want to look at the house, didn't want anything to do with the house, wouldn't step on the property. Absolutely not. Uh, so really, he's a chicken. Um, and that's okay. Let him be. Uh, it, it all worked out exactly the way it was supposed to, or it would have worked out another way. That's right. Would it be fair to say that the one one of the, the disappointments on the portrayal in the movie was how they, uh, they portrayed the family's religious beliefs? Yes. Well, that was, um, you know, I, I think I understand why they did it. They tried to juxtapose, you know, the, the, the godless heathen pagan parents to the holier-than-thou Roman Catholic Warrens, um, maybe to draw some distinction between the two. But, you know, you've been in the paranormal field for a long time, and you know, you know, it's it's not the atheists that have uh, spirit activity, you know, trying to connect with them. It's people of faith generally. And so I think it does a disservice to the field to represent it as such. You know, it's like if you don't believe in God, they're going to come get you. The devil's going to get you. You know, it's very, you know, very rudimentary thinking. Um, and um, uh, it's just a, it's really a very black and white in a technicolor universe. Um but the fact is that we were all born and raised Catholic. We were all baptized. We were all confirmed. We, you know, we all made our, our first communion. We all uh, were members of the church. My father was on the way to the priesthood before he met my mother. He had been born and raised into the Catholic tradition. He had been educated in parochial school. He had been an altar boy for his entire youth and was uh, very, very close to uh, his teacher, Father Menard, who was trying to um, convince him after he got out of the Navy during the Korean War to go into the seminary. And had he not met my mother, he probably would have. So we were steeped in the Catholic tradition. And the truth of it is that a couple of years into our tenure at the farm, we went to uh, Easter Mass. Uh, we, we always went to church on the, on the big holidays. Not a lot. I mean, we weren't regular, regular churchgoers, but we were certainly people of faith. And you don't have to have a crucifix hanging on every wall and a fake picture of Jesus hanging on every other wall to be, you know, a faithful person. Uh, and the film tried, you know, to represent it as that, like, you know, they just, you know, not into the whole God thing. And that's not fair. Um, and it's not true. Uh, my mother never sought out the Warrens. They came and found us. Uh, and our priest is the one who turned his back on our family um, when he heard some of the things that were happening at the farm. And he approached my father that Easter Sunday in 1972 and asked him to take his family and worship elsewhere. And that's what really happened. Well, that's it's amazing, but you know it it doesn't surprise me because I've heard stories of that before. Once they they start hearing the stories, it's like I'd rather you probably just go somewhere else. So that's that's yeah. not an uncommon story, unfortunately, especially as you go back in the fifties, sixties, seventies type situation. Yeah, well, he was afraid. You know, he was afraid. He didn't, and he didn't want to start losing his flock. You know, his parishioners. Because the Perrin family went to St. Patrick's, you know, I think that uh, it was really, you know, <laughs> cut the bad apple out of the bunch and send them someplace else. And my father was so hurt and so upset about that because he'd always been, you know, what he perceived to be a good Catholic. And 
uh, you know, had raised his family as such. My mother converted to Catholicism so that she could marry my father. Um, and, you know, it was very unfortunate that, uh, that it, it happened the way that it did. And, uh, we never did, um, reestablish with another religion or another church. Um, my mother, uh, just withdrew, uh, any support that she had ever given to the church, uh, in terms of her belief in them, you know, truly being keepers of the flock. And, uh, we went to the woods, I guess in in a way we kind of did become pagans naturally, (laughs) you know, uh, she always said, if you want to find God, go to the woods. And, uh, that's, we found God, you know, but it was funny though, because, um, there's one of, uh, one of the more popular stories in my three volumes, uh, cause it's broken into 10 chapters and I don't know, like 150 sub chapters. It's just crazy. It's so much material. It's 1500 pages, three books. But, um, one of the stories that I get the most comments about, uh, was the, that Easter Sunday when we went to church and, um, my little sister, April, I think she was only six at the time. Uh, when the priest said, and the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, April said, turned to my mother, and she said, see, Mom, God's got ghosts, too, just like us. <laughs> and when she did that, every head in that church turned. And it was after Mass that uh, the priest came up to my father and suggested that we go someplace else to find God. Now, Andrea... That was some good chats about some mo- the movies and some differences. I want to get into a little real life stuff. The, the incident started for you almost a moment you walked through the door. Tell me a little bit about the first couple of days in the house, because I know you had some uh, incidents uh, that first or second night. Tell me a little bit about from the moment you walked through the house. Well, you know, I'll, I'll back it up even just a little bit and um say that we made uh, a number of visits to the farm from the time my mother found it in June of 1970 uh, to the closing, which was in uh, December of 1970. And then, of course, she didn't want to move over Christmas, and who can blame her for that? So we didn't move in until January of 1971, but we already owned it, and Mr. Kenyon was still there. Um, And he, bless his heart, he didn't want to leave. His son was really forcing him. Uh, out of that house it was actually very sad because he loved it there and he had spent many decades of his life in the house and um it i think it broke his spirit to leave it i really do but he was uh the day we moved in it was a swirling snow and ice storm it felt like it had taken forever to drive from cumberland rhode island to harrisville rhode island that day because we had to crawl because the streets were just laden with ice And we pulled into the yard. Dad hopped out of the truck and opened it up. And uh, we had like a caravan of cars. There were a lot of people. It was, you know, uh, aunts and uncles. And my grandmother was there, my meme on my dad's side. And, uh, you know, a lot of people. Um, And all the guys uh, went towards the back of the truck so that they could start pulling out the big, big furniture. Uh, And uh, all the kitchen boxes were at the very back of the truck because mom said they've got to go in last so that she can have them first. So when we got there, she went in the house and took April in with her because April was five at the time. 
and she was too young to be out in that cold, and she really was too small to help unload the truck. So mom said, stay in the kitchen and help me in here. So that left the other four of us to start offloading the truck. And uh, dad put a big box in my arms and said, take this to your mother in the kitchen. And it was so cold. Oh, my God, it was so cold that day. Uh, I still remember it. I still remember the membranes in my in my throat and in my nose freezing, you know, as I was outside. And so I went to the closest door that I could get to, which was the parlor door. And I went inside, uh, closed it behind me, turned a hard right into the dining room. And Mr. Kenyon was standing at the kitchen table at his at his dining room table and uh, packing boxes the last of his belongings out of the china cabinet. And um, there was a man standing in the room with him. And, uh, and believe me when I tell you, please believe me, I had no idea this it was a spirit. I thought it was a very oddly dressed man who was a friend of his. And uh, I said good morning to Mr. Kenyon. He greeted me. And then I kept walking and I went past this other man who was standing in the doorway between the dining room and the front foyer and I said, good morning, sir. And he looked right through me, like didn't hear me, didn't see me. He was completely focused on Mr. Kenyon. And so I walked into the kitchen. I'm like, mom, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? He's dressed funny. And she's like, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon, honey. His son's on the way. He's not here yet. Well, then like a minute later, Christine walks in with her box. And she says, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And my mother's like, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon. And, and, you know, it was chaos. It was bedlam. It was nuts. There were tons of people all, you know, circulating all through the house. And so it was not something that my mother dropped everything to go investigate, you know. And, um, and then uh, Cindy came in with her box. And she said the same thing. And then Nancy came in. And she leaned over to Cindy and she said, did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? I saw him, but then he disappeared. And that was our introduction to the supernatural realm. Uh, and interestingly, uh, a couple of hours later, as Mr. Kenyon was finishing up and my father was in the dining room talking to him, uh, literally making an offer for him to stay with us if he wanted to just live with us. The house was plenty big because uh, he could see how sad he was. Um, that apparition manifested again. And all of my father's children saw it, but he was standing two feet away and he didn't. And that was when it clicked in my head that this was something very new and unusual and unlike anything that any of us had ever experienced before. And none of us, we sort of knew not to bring it to his attention. You know, we just knew. And then, um, you know, after things started happening, well, it, I don't know if it was the very first night, but it was certainly within the first few nights that we were living in the house that uh, Cindy came into my bedroom and she said, Annie, can I sleep with you? And I said, of course. You know, I threw back the quilt, invited her into the bed with me, and she said, I hear voices in my room. And I said, well, you know, that is that Chris? You know, because Chris sleeps walks and sleep talks and or she used to when she was a child anyway and um and she said no it's not Chris she's asleep she said 
I hear voices all around my bed. They're standing all around my bed and they get louder and louder and louder. And I put my pillow over my head and I could still hear them. And it was just shaking the house. And I was so scared. And I was like, uh, you know, and she's like, I don't understand why you didn't hear it. I mean, because my room was literally right next to her room. And she just did not understand with the door open between the rooms. So she didn't understand how I couldn't have heard it. And so I, but I didn't. And I asked her, I said, well, if they're talking, what are they saying? And she said, they keep saying the same thing over and over again. And they say it all together as though they're talking as one voice, but it's a lot of voices. And she said, um, they keep saying to me, there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. And um, she said that that happened to her every single night for the 10 years that we lived in the house, every night. Even when she moved out of her room and moved into my room when I went off to college. And she took my room, I swear to God, before I was out of the driveway. And um, she thought that that would be a safer space for her uh, to get away from it. Um, And she said it turned out that it was worse. She said... um, that once she moved into my room, she uh, came to the conclusion that the soldiers were buried in my wall, not her wall. Well, that's comforting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you, yeah. Uh, you, you actually heard some stuff in your room, too, that you didn't even realize what it was two years later, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that started right away. And, of course, you know, we moved into a house that was completed in 1736. 40 years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, The land for it, for the homestead, what was one of the original Providence plantations, um, was deeded in 1680. You know, so this goes back about as far back as the colonies go, you know. And uh, I would lay in my bed at night and I would hear what sounded like an archaic horn And I thought that it was, at first, I thought that it was um, just wind whistling through the eaves, you know, because it was a clapboard house, no insulation, freezing cold. Um, And I I figured, you know, it was winter. Uh, It was very windy, very brutal weather conditions outside. And so I didn't know what to make of it. And, um, you know, I heard it over and over and over again, and I didn't realize until I was gosh, sometime in my 30s, I uh, had a restaurant in Lincoln, Rhode Island, and I was going with my business partner to uh, deliver a catering job. And we were passing, uh, there's this great road. um, Well, it actually is connected to Great Road in Lincoln. It's called Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln, Rhode Island. And we were driving down Breakneck Hill Road to turn onto Great Road to go deliver a catering job. And as we were passing the Chase Farm, a big, huge old farm, and they did uh, Revolutionary War reenactments there. And as we're passing it, it was a it was a hot day. We had the windows down in the truck, and I heard that horn, and uh, the same sound that from my childhood. And I said, "Gail, pull the car over. Pull the you know pull the truck over. Pull it over." She's like, "What's wrong? We got you know we got." <laughs> We got food in the bag. We got to go deliver the food. I'm like, no, no, just for a minute. Just pull it over so that I could listen. And it was the horn of the clarion call, the call to arms um, that I heard in that house as a child. 
probably calling the soldiers that were already dead. Wow. Now, these these entities that you guys dealt with, or spirits, however you want to term them, and there were several of them from my understanding. Yeah, um, they, many. They kind of focused more on your mom than anybody. I know Cindy had her share of, of um, even more than the other children, but your mom actually went through a lot of physical and mental changes uh, during this time, and then she ended up having a, an event that kind of brought her back. Can you touch on that for a second? Yes. Um, after the the uh, seance and, you know, my mother's terrible injury from that, um, she went into, I wouldn't even call it a depression. Um, I would just call it like this strange funk. And she wasn't eating well. She was kind of getting very thin and gaunt and wasting away. She didn't feel well. She was tired a lot. She suffered uh, terrible fatigue. And I was 15 years old at the time. I was certainly old enough and, and well capable enough to step in as the third, you know, perhaps surrogate parent while she healed from what was a very, very traumatic event. Uh, and so I stepped up and I, I did my thing. And uh, one night I was sitting up at about 11 o'clock. Uh, it was quite late and I was doing my homework on the couch because I had already made beef stew for the girls and helped them with their homework and got them off to bed much earlier. And I had an inordinate amount of work to do that night. So I was sitting quietly and keeping the home fires burning, you know, keep throwing wood on the fireplace we all knew from knee high to a grasshopper how to build a fire. And uh, all of a sudden, my mom's bedroom door opened. And uh, she stepped out and she looked, oh, she looked just wasting, wasted, like just so exhausted. Um, and she went and stood on the, on the hearthstone of the fireplace and um, asked me what I had made for dinner. I told her, asked me if there was any left. I said, of course. And then asked me if I would warm some up for her. Well, I was delighted to go get some food for my mother, you know. Uh, and on my way, I hopped right up and I said, yeah, I, I'll go uh, warm it up. And, of course, microwaves didn't exist then. And so I had to pull it out of the fridge and warm it up in the pan. And, and she asked me as I was leaving the room if I would make a short pot of coffee for her. I remember looking back and saying, Mom, it's 11 o'clock at night. And she's like but it's the nectar of the gods. <laughs> like, okay, I'll make you some coffee, honey. And so I walked through the, I had shut the whole house down. Dad was out of town. Uh, all the girls were upstairs asleep and the house was completely shut down other than, a, you know, a couple of little nightlights here and there so that nobody get killed coming down the stairs to use the bathroom. And um, as I walked through the dining room that was completely dark and through the front foyer, through the kitchen, and then into the pantry, I would say I was probably gone for about 10 minutes, 15 tops. And meanwhile, my mother uh, pulled the screen from the uh, fireplace and threw um, one last big log on for the night. Uh, in so doing, she heard laughter behind her. And she turned around and she looked into our dining room that a moment before had been shut down completely. And in that dining room was furniture that was not our own and a family we didn't know. And there was a, a woman who was cooking stew, interestingly, over the fireplace. 
uh, and that fireplace had been sealed shut and the center chimney gone more than a hundred years before we even moved into the house. Uh, she was dressed in a full length, um, dress with a, a pinafore, uh, which is a nice way of saying an apron. Um, and there were a couple of kids running around in the room and there were two men sitting on one of the benches on the, at the side of the hand hewn oak table. None of the furniture in the room was ours. It was all theirs. There were uh, candles burning, there were uh, lamps, oil lamps burning, and there were two pewter steins in front of the two gentlemen, uh, which is indicative of the 1700s because, of course, pewter was outlawed for uh, use uh, in the 1800s because of the lead content, and it was basically killing people. So um, my mother just stood there and looked into the dining room with her mouth hanging open because... She'd never seen anything like this in the years that we'd lived in the house. And uh, one of the, the, the two men were talking to each other and everybody seemed quite jovial. And the mother just told her children to go sit, take their seats at the table for their dinner. And one of the men turned and looked into the parlor and made eye contact with my mother and smiled at her. And then he nudged the man sitting beside him and pointed her out to that man. And for all intents and purposes, he was pointing out the ghost that he saw. So he was peering into the future at the same time that my mother was simultaneously peering into the past. And that was the moment that it all made sense to her. That was her moment of epiphany when she finally understood exactly what was going on in that house and what she later described, described as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. Uh, that it was uh, multiple dimensions existing simultaneously. Uh, and it made sense to her. And um, and then they just disappeared. They just were gone. And the room was dark again. And then I walked through the door carrying a tray of, of beef stew and a cup of coffee for my mother. And I'm telling you, Jerry, she was beaming from ear to ear. I had <laughs> not seen my mother smile like that in a very long time. And I just, I just looked at her like, I mean, she glowed, she glowed. And I was so thrilled. I mean, I know I'm, I must've, I, I'm sure I can't remember exactly what I said to her, but I'm sure I said something, uh, and, you know, and sat her down, uh, and put the tray in her lap and she didn't even tell me what she had seen. All of a sudden I just saw my mom happy again. And, uh, and that was delightful enough, but I didn't know until days later when she actually told me what she saw that night, what, what the reason was for her sudden, uh, enlightenment as it were. Uh, and I thought that that was one of the most profound things that ever happened in that house. I mean, it sounds like it, considering everything she had been through just to have that epiphany, it just kind of shed the light on everything. And when you get that kind of, uh, uh, well, epiphany is the best word to use. When you get that, it's like everything just makes sense now. Yep, it did. That's exactly how it was for her. You know, my mom's a Virgo and she's an extremely intelligent, articulate, pragmatic person. And, uh, I mean, she's, I think she's Virgo squared. I mean, she really is. Uh, in fact, her 78th birthday is next week, which is why I'm in Georgia right now, 
because uh, I have to be on a plane all day long on her birthday this year. So I came up to see her and spend a few weeks with her because uh, I live in Florida now. And uh, even though I lived here and I wrote the books while I lived here, um, a couple of years ago I moved down to Florida. But uh, I'm here with my family right now with mom and my sister Christine. You know, one of the things that I wanted to share with you is uh, about Christine because it wasn't until I started writing the books some 30 years after we moved out of the farm that I realized that Christine was the most traumatized of all of us. Cindy, of my sisters, Cindy is the one that suffered the most um, and that they came to most frequently uh, and that she really mixed it up with some dark forces in that house, Cindy did. Um, but my mother is the one that suffered, uh, you know, the most encounters uh, in terms of uh, being physically uh, pushed around or attacked or, you know, the many different things that happened to her. But Christine's the one that suffered uh, the most psychological trauma of living in the house. And the reason that I know that was because I lived right here in this house that I'm speaking to you from right now in Georgia. And Christine's room and my bedroom were literally three feet apart from each other. And I lived here for seven years. And it wasn't until the fourth year, I would say probably the third or fourth year that I lived here, that I was finally able to get Christine to tell me what actually happened to her personally in the house. And um, she didn't want to revisit it. She did not. And there are things that happened at that house that we're not even allowed to talk about in her presence because she will just sob. She'll just begin to weep. And, uh, you know, so I guess in that way, it was very enlightening for me. You know, people often ask me if it was cathartic for me to write the books or cathartic for my family. Um, and I guess in some ways, yes. But in some ways, it opened some very deep, raw wounds. And my mother said to me, my mother said to me one time when I was taking notes, um, just working on, on interviews with my family, making sure that I got all the stories right and that they were basically the right timeline, right year, right month, right, you know, trying to get as authentically as I possibly could. And my mother stopped me one day and I was writing you know, like copious notes, you know, <laughs> just writing, writing, writing. And I mean, everybody was here. That day, everybody was here except for my father. All five of my mother's daughters, a friend of ours who we grew up with, who knew, and she's in the books too. She had moved to, to Georgia right after we did because she didn't want to be away from our family. So she left her biological family to come and move to Georgia with the parents. And, and she's like our sixth sister. We love her dearly. And um, my mother stopped me and she said, you know, it's amazing. And I said, well, what, what's amazing, Mom? And she said, we've spent more than 30 years trying to bury our dead from the farm. And yet, when it came time to exhume them, amazing how close to the surface they've been buried. You mentioned, obviously, you wrote these books. I want to revisit something just a little bit before that, because when you guys moved to Georgia, 
Uh, the Warrens actually, at least Lorraine Warren actually contacted you guys about trying to do a, a book or a movie deal back then, but you did, you guys weren't really willing to do that back then. Talk a little uh, quick about that, and then we'll get into your books. Well, you know, Mrs. Warren called my mother uh, about three months after we moved to Georgia, and uh, I mean, it was, you know, long before the days of Google. Uh, we don't even know how she ever found us or got our number or anything, um, and uh, we hadn't even heard from her in seven years, more than seven years, so uh, it was it was just strange. I was standing in the kitchen when the call came, and my mother answered the phone. And she sat down immediately in the nearest chair, and I watched all the color drain out of her face. And she started talking. And she didn't even, even though she did put her hand over the receiver and tell me that it was Mrs. Warren, I already knew because of her reaction. And um, she said, uh, no, no, no. I, I really, I don't want to think about it anymore. I just want to move on. I want to get on with my life. I don't even want to think about it anymore. And Miss, Mrs. Warren offered my mother, our family, a boatload of money to get the movie rights and uh, the book rights um, and even had a ghostwriter uh, there with her on the other end of the line and put him on the phone with my mother. And my mother said to him, I want you to run as far and fast away from your, this story as you possibly can. No good can come of it. And, you know, Mrs. Warren was very uh, persistent, and she got my mother to at least agree to talk to my father about it. And she said she would call her back the next day. Well, that night in our new house in Georgia, you know, a house that was literally only a few years old. My mother was attacked in the cellar of the new house. Uh, a hundred pound solid oak door was literally shoved over on top of her while she was putting laundry into the washing machine. Uh, and believe me when I tell you, my father is the one that had taken that door off of its hinges. He needed help to do it. And it was stacked in the laundry room and propped in such a way that nothing could have moved that door because he, of course, knew how dangerous it was. And it had to be moved to get the, you know, their larger antiques and things into the master bedroom down on the uh, ground level floor. And um, that thing came flying over on top of my mother and uh, dislocated her shoulder, cracked ribs, gave her a concussion. I mean, it just about, I mean, she was very, very injured. And the next day when Mrs. Warren called back, she said, didn't tell her anything about what happened because what was the point, really? And um, she said, uh, my answer is no, and please don't ever contact me again. And that was it. So 30 years later, you decide that you're going to write this book or trilogy of books, as it turns out to be. How did your family respond to that after some time obviously had passed and some healing had been taking place? Well, you know, um, it took decades, really, for us to process this. Um, and we hardly ever talked about it, honestly. 
we hardly ever talked about it amongst our family, and we certainly didn't talk about it outside of our family. But it was almost like a bell went off in my head one day in August of uh, 2007. Uh, and I, I had a very happy life. I was the lone holdout. I was the only one in the family that was still living in Rhode Island. Everybody else was in Georgia or Florida. And um, I just, it, it was like, the it wasn't me that decided. It was decided for me. It was as though the time had come for me to fulfill my own destiny to tell this story in a very unique way. And I had a great job that I loved. I was a member of the theater company of Rhode Island, had been doing stage plays and musicals. And I mean, my real love is theater. And uh, I had been with them for more than 20 years. I mean, I was very happy, happy, happy um, in my life and in my pursuits. And suddenly I was dissatisfied with everything, everything. I mean, it was like a, a, some, a, a switch flipped in me. And uh, it was my vacation week um, from my job. And I never left the house except to go to the CVS and get uh, paper, uh, legal pad. I got uh, note cards and I got a recipe box. And then I came back to the house and I lived on a little lake uh, in Harmony, Rhode Island, uh, Waterman Lake. And I stayed in the house or on the back porch for 10 days. I had a 10-day vacation. And all I did was write. That's all that I did. Six months later, I had packed up everything that I owned, including my critters, and moved here to uh, Georgia to be with my mother, my sister Christine. Uh, my sister Cindy lived just down the street. Uh, my sister April lived an hour away. God rest her soul. She passed away five months ago. Uh, and none of us will ever get over that. But that's a whole nother story for a whole nother time. I'm glad she lived long enough to see her story told in print and to have her essay included among uh, all of them. Um, and just as a side note, may I say that my sister died from a combination of oxycodone and a fentanyl patch that is a toxic, lethal combination of drugs. And if any of your listeners is using that combination of drugs, I ask them, so that April has not died in vain, I ask them to please consider um, cease and desist with that combination because uh, the pharmaceutical companies are making a fortune. Uh, they own Congress, as does the American Medical Association, and the lobbyists are not going to do anything to take this combination of drugs off the market but you put those two drugs together and it might not kill you right away, but it's eventually going to kill you. 91 people a day are dying in the United States of America because of that combination of drugs. So just off on a tangent for a moment, and maybe it, hopefully it saves somebody's life. Uh, all she did was take the drugs that her doctor prescribed for her. That's all she did. And she died sitting up watching TV when it stopped her heart. It's a shame. Uh, Sorry to hear I'm about so, that. Thank you. She was only two weeks away from her 52nd birthday, and she went too soon. But uh, let her death not be in vain. And every time I do an interview, I tell people how she died, exactly how she died, and what drugs killed her. 
and they were perfectly legal and they were prescribed by a doctor who I guarantee you got a kickback from the pharmaceutical company because that's how it works in the United States of America. So we have to educate ourselves and protect each other and take care of one another the best way that we can because believe me, the people that are lining their pockets and have blood on their hands don't really care what happens to us. So that's my, uh, I'll put my soapbox away now about that. Uh, I just hope that the message gets out. But, um, you know, uh, it took everything that I had, everything that I had. I devoted seven years of my life. And isn't it interesting that that number keeps coming up? Seven, seven. There are seven members in my family. It took seven years, literally to the day, to write and publish the three books. I started on August 7th, 2007, and the last book was published on August 7th, 2014. And I had turned all my work into my publisher months before the actual publication date. They didn't know when I started the work. And it just sort of worked out that way, that it was seven years to the day that it took to write and, and publish all three of those books. <laughs> uh, and it's, it, it's my life's work. Uh, it has um, touched hundreds of thousands of people. I receive many, many letters from my readers, countless letters, and they all basically say the same thing. And that is, you have opened my heart and opened my mind with your family's story. I feel like I lived there with you for the entire 10 years that your family was there, as though I have some very profound attachment to the farm that I cannot explain. I will never think or feel the same way about anything ever again. And many of them, paraphrased, let me say, um, come to me as uh, I had an event happen or an experience happen when I was young, and I never told anybody in my family about it. And I grew up and I got married and I never told my spouse and I never shared it with anyone because I didn't want to be shunned or called stupid or crazy. I didn't want to share it with anybody because I was afraid and now I'm not afraid anymore and your family has more courage than I've ever seen in my life of anybody and now I tell everyone what happened to me and I have received so so much correspondence that very often when I get a really great letter I just call my mom if I'm not here with her I'll call my mom and just read it to her. And it, and it brings her comfort um, because, you know, she she was worried. She was worried that uh, I wouldn't be taken seriously or we wouldn't be taken seriously or we would just be, you know, dismissed or harassed or, you know, whatever. And I said, no, Mom. I said, I really do believe that the world is ready for this. I really do. I think it's time. And, uh, and it turns out I was right about that. My mother um, is the one that um, titled the books. It was actually only supposed to be one book. Um, but the story was just so, uh, it just got ahead of me. It really did. I mean, when everybody was piling on, you know, this happened to me. And remember when that happened and remember this and remember that. And, oh, it just, it, it was like there was no end to it. <laughs> and I didn't include everything. In the books, there were things that happened in that house that my sisters did not want included um, because they were either embarrassing or they were, you know, just too intense or too personal. 
Um, and uh, but now they've really gotten past that. So uh, things that they requested that I leave out of the books are actually going to be in the films because they're ready now to tell the whole truth. Um, but there were several incidents that happened at the farmhouse that were so deeply disturbing that they did not want to include them. Uh, and one of them was uh, an incident that happened with my sister Cindy that was uh, truly life-threatening. And um, she just didn't want to relive it, even to tell me the whole story, because it uh, I wasn't there when it happened. I was away from the house when it happened, but April knew about it. And April is actually the one that stepped in and saved her. And But it was, it was very personal. I mean, when it happened, she was in the bathtub and was literally held down in the water by an unseen entity and was about ready to drown when April uh, kicked open the door and stopped it, whatever it was. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, uh, but I would say about 98% of all the really important, pertinent uh, stories are in the books. But, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren uh, are on the record, long on the record, of saying uh, before Ed died, he um, told Lorraine, make sure while you're still living that you get the parent family story told, that you do whatever you have to do. Uh, and he always said that it was the most intense, compelling, disturbing, and significant of all of the uh, investigations they conducted over a 40-year career. Wow. Do you have a, uh, uh, real quick, do you have a timeline for when your screenplays are going to be made in the movies? Well, um, I am meeting with my uh, director and my, the producers in November, um, and turning over the uh, first completed screenplay next week. That's awesome. I can't wait for see that. Andrea, it's been such a pleasure having you on. The books, House of Darkness, House of Light, and what is the best way to get that? I, I, I'm, I'm sure any outlet that you get books has this because they're so popular. Yeah, but the best way and the least expensive way to get them is uh, from Amazon because they very often run the trilogy as a set. And you can get them, I think you can get the whole trilogy for less than $15 if you order them on uh, any e-reader. Um, but they often run them on sale. They run them at a discount because they sell them in multiples. Uh, so I would say uh, go to Amazon.com or go to my publisher, AuthorHouse.com. And you can get them. If you order them, uh, you know, they're, they're so thick. They're so heavy. They're so big. All the bookstores in Rhode Island and Massachusetts and Connecticut pretty much keep them in stock. But, um, you know, not everywhere. So if you have to order it, there's a special order fee. You can get them through. I mean, you can get them through any bookseller. Uh, but, you know, Barnes & Noble tax on a fee. And, you know, it's just... If they're expensive anyway and hard and soft cover, they retail for like $25 and $35 a piece. You know, they are expensive because they're 550 pages a piece. Um, so I would suggest uh, go on the e-reader route or get the softbound and get them on sale as, as all three from Amazon. And that's uh, really the best way. And I also sell them. Um, people can contact me on Facebook and I keep them in stock most of the time. And uh, and I can ship them inscribed with pictures and uh, all the little gifts that I include every time I sell a book through the mail. 
That is so awesome. I'm so sorry to hear about April. And Thanks. I wanted to wish your mother a happy birthday. My birthday's next week also. What day is hers? 24th. Mine's the 22nd. So we, uh, my, I had a best, one of my best friends passed away on the 21st, uh, or he's born the 21st of August. We always celebrate our birthday together. And that's why we started this show on the 21st last year was kind of in memory of him. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, those things hit, hit close to home. And, uh, I, I'm so happy that you, uh, spoke up about the situation because anytime we can use our platform to let thousands of people know about these things and, and maybe save a life, I mean, yes. more power to everybody who, who is willing to do that. So thank you so much for that as well. You're welcome, sweetheart. And, you know, please give my, uh, love to your wife. And know that I would be happy to join you again anytime. I mean, we really have just barely scratched the surface tonight. And that's true of virtually every interview that I do. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a huge story. Uh, and you had great questions, and I'm sure you have more. So I'll come back and join you again sometime, and we'll just pick up where we left off. Thank you so much, and and uh, I hope you have a re good rest of the week and hope you had a good visit with your family down there. Thank you so much, sweetheart. You have a great evening, and thank you. How fascinating a story is that? It was great. I mean, as good as the movie is, when you start hearing all the details that mm -hmm. really took place, and guys, I'm telling you, if you actually get the books and read the books, it's going to knock your socks off. There's details in that book that I chose not to use because – I want her to be able to sell books. And yeah, absolutely. It, it would be unfair for me to give some of it out. But trust me when I tell you there are things in the books that uh, will totally freak you out. So, oh, my God. It's so exciting. I can't wait for the movies to come I out. I cannot if they're either. Gonna, if they're actually going to make them the way that it really was yeah. to where they felt like, as you heard in the interview, it would scare as they As she said, if they did it the way they, that they wanted to originally, it would have ran people out of the theater. That's crazy. So that's I can't wait for this. I these. know. I can't wait either. I think I'll even – well – you know, I'm, I like scary movies I, as I get older. I don't know. They just have a different effect on me, but I'm actually really anxious to go see this one. So, Keep in mind, uh, we're having the contest to give away the earbuds. I didn't touch on it a whole lot earlier, but we're going to give, be giving away the earbuds from Studio. So what I need for you guys to do is go to our Hillbilly Horror Stories page on Facebook tomorrow I am going to post just something that states, if you want to win the headphones, put your name on here. Mm -hmm. And who, whatever, you know, we're going to start from the very oldest name to the newest name on there. And Saturday of next week, we're going to use a random number generator from the phone uh, to pick the winner. We might even film it and put it on Facebook. But we, we're going to pick a winner that way. So if you're the fourth name listed and number four is drawn, you're going to win these headphones. And they're an $80 set of headphones. Yeah, they really sound good. So you guys are going to love them. Yep. So go join the Facebook page if you haven't already. And that's where you can find that tomorrow. Yay. We want to thank you guys so much for joining us. Like I said, this was going to be our longest show. And it's going to be close to three hours when it's all said and done now. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope it wasn't too long. A lot of you are asking for longer shows. That's what we got. Next week's show, we're going to talk about the Black Monk House. And a lot of you have been asking about rock and roll in the occult. I'm going to have some music stories for you next week. Next week's show is going to be fun. Won't be quite three hours. Mm -mm. Probably won't be two hours. But we're going to have fun with it. Heck yeah. That's time do we do a rock and roll show again. Yeah. I mean, we haven't done one, I think, since Elvis. Yeah. When we back mm -hmm. when we did that one. But um, 
I told you guys that we were going to have a special world premiere song from Tragic, uh, Mike Solzer uh, from Solzer Entertainment. He's the guy that does our rap at the beginning of the show. He's actually a very talented artist, and I wanted you guys to hear what he really does when he's actually performing like he normally does yeah. and not doing something for us. So, yeah. Uh, this song's called Handouts. I hope you enjoy. We'll see you guys next week. Love ya. Just to keep you entertained, I do this shit with a full heart 